0: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary. VTW void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
2: Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to
3: blacktalkradionetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk.
4: The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. worldafropedia.com
5: Seattle's a great place to visit because it has,
6: I guess you could say a little bit of everything, but I like to think of it as a lot of everything.
7: Kevin Gilmet and his mom, June, sit down at his kitchen table in Lynwood to talk history, civil rights history.
8: I was just a baby. I was just a kid.
7: Gilmet was 15 in July 1963, but he was old enough to take part in Seattle's first civil rights sit-ins. He and 21 other young people, many of them teenagers, occupied city council chambers for four days. His memory is foggy, but he can still picture the initial confrontation.
8: I'm not leaving until you're gonna make me leave. You know, and I think that one of the that police captain came out and said, Well then stay. Sit down and have your own floors are hard. Bye.
7: Then on July twenty-fifth, they were arrested. They were frustrated that city leaders were dragging their feet on ending racial discrimination in housing. Gilmet had firsthand experience. His dad was white. His mom is African-American. When they moved to Edmonds from New York in the mid-50s, his dad decided it might be better for him to buy the house, and he hands over the down payment.
8: And then the family moved in. Oh, my God. Are my eyes deceiving me? This is a, that's a black woman. It better be the maid. Oh, no, it's <laughs> not the maid. It is the wife. <clears throat> and those are the little mulatto children running <clears throat> They came to us in Edmonds with $50,000 that the neighborhood had put together to rebuy the house.
7: The Gilmets declined the neighbor's offer. They managed to settle in an all-white enclave, but the experience of Reverend Samuel McKinney was more common. He moved here in 1958 from the East Coast to take over as pastor of Mount Zion Baptist Church. Then he went house hunting with his wife.
3: I would see a house and... uh inquire about it, and people heard my voice, they asked me, are you colored? And asked them, what difference did that make? And then they would hang up.
7: Many properties had racial restrictions written into their deeds. The language sounds archaic. No part of this property shall ever be used by any Hebrew or a person of the Ethiopian, Malay, or Asiatic race. University of Washington history professor James Gregory says they were enforceable in court.
9: If I, as a property owner, wished to sell or rent to somebody who was um, not white, I could be sued by all the neighbors uh, for doing so, and I could lose, essentially, my property.
7: In 1948, the U.S. Supreme Court said they were not enforceable. But housing discrimination persisted outside the city's central district. In 1963, activists led by Reverend McKinney pushed for an ordinance prohibiting discrimination in housing. Real estate interests testified against it.
1: We believe it will have a broad tendency (coughs) to depress rents with its consequent reduction in economic values of real estate.
10: This opening housing ordinance is an attempt to deprive all of us of one of our basic democratic rights which is to dispose of our property
11: both real and personal as we see fit
3: they were so worried that we would tear down uh, what had been built up we would not take care of the property and all like that and we would attract elements to the community that were considered undesirable
7: the city council decided not to vote on it. Instead, they put the measure on the ballot. History professor James Gregory says opponents called it a forced housing ordinance. One ad said, don't let them kick away your rights. Voters defeated the measure two to one.
9: White Seattle basically turned, uh, turned its back on the um, desires of the communities of color for a fair shake in housing.
7: Not until 1968, three weeks after Dr. King was assassinated, did the city council vote to pass it. I asked Kevin Gilmet if he feels at all vindicated. Did it feel at all like an accomplishment, you know? That these restrictive covenants had gone away, blah, blah. blah. No, no, no,
8: no, no, because this is what the the Constitution of the United States guarantees for everybody, and I have to fight for it, so when I do get it, I should be, thank
7: you? If anything, Gilmet feels frustrated that the things he worked so hard for are now under attack. He points to states such as North Carolina passing restrictive voting laws.
8: Certain factions of this country are saying, well, if we can't, if, if you were not going to vote for us, we're just not going to let you vote. Really? We're going to go back there and do that again? We already did that. I already did that.
3: I'm sorry that the brother feels discouraged.
7: Reverend McKinney says you can't lose hope.
3: An old spiritual said, like, a, keep moving along like a little worm, The struggle continues.
7: Even in housing in Seattle, that struggle continues. A study by the city in 2011 found illegal housing discrimination in more than half of the rental properties tested. Ashley Gross, KPLU News.
3: Earlier today, I was briefed by my Homeland Security team on the events
12: in Boston. Uh, we're continuing to monitor and respond uh, to the situation as it unfolds. Uh, the American people will say a prayer for Boston tonight, and Michelle and I send our deepest thoughts and prayers. To the families of the victims. Today marks the
11: 50th anniversary of the Fair Housing Act, which critics say is losing its bite under President Trump's administration. The Fair Housing Act was signed into law on April 11, 1968, by President Lyndon Baines Johnson. It was meant to protect minority renters and buyers from discrimination. But what effect did the act have here in Boston? Joining us in the studio to explain is James Jennings. He is Professor Emeritus of Urban Planning at Tufts University. Thanks for joining us, Professor Jennings. Thank you. So first of all, to understand the importance of the Fair Housing Act, it helps to understand what happened when a black family showed up to rent or buy a place to live. Like a family sees an ad in the paper and goes to rent an apartment and calls up, makes an appointment. Then what happens?
13: Sometimes, depending on the tone of the voice, the person is discouraged. The voice sounded too black or too Latino. And what if they go to buy a house? They go to the bank to get a loan? Banks have a long history of redlining in this country, marking a certain area of a city to either not provide loans to that area or provide loans at a very high cost, very high interest rates. To to minorities, but willing to provide loans to white people. Exactly, exactly. Okay.
11: And Boston has a real history of redlining.
13: Yes, yes.
11: What areas were redlined more than others?
13: Mattapan, Roxbury. We're looking at communities that at one point may have been predominantly Jewish, predominantly Italian, but once banks started to redline these areas as blacks sought to become homeowners, white ethnic groups moved out, blacks tried to move in, And many times could not find banks that would loan them money or even provide monies to improve the housing that they were able to get.
11: So we're talking about, like, for example, on Blue Hill Avenue. That used to be a very Jewish neighborhood back what when, in the 50s, 40s? You could say 40s,
13: 50s, into the 60s. And then it shifted. Yes. From mostly Jewish
11: to mostly black.
13: Mostly black. Same occurred in Mattapan.
11: You can actually see right there on city maps, which you've compiled this transition of the city by the decade. So we're going to put those maps online at wgbhnews.org. And those maps show defined neighborhoods where black people were de facto restricted to living in and around the time of the Fair Housing Act. But what parts of the city had, like, nobody black?
13: Well, Boston still has some sections of the city, by the way, where no one is black. But you had certain neighborhoods, white working-class neighborhoods, South Boston, Charleston, more middle class neighborhoods, again, predominantly white, West Roxbury, parts of Jamaica Plain for a long time, even Hyde Park, parts of Dorchester. These were parts of the city that were almost lily white and very resistant to the oncoming of black and also Latino families. So, this notion of redlining was not unique to Boston.
11: It was a national problem. Of course. And that brings about the Fair Housing Act. Yes. What was
13: the Fair Housing Act aiming to do? To prevent discrimination on the basis of religion, sex, national origin, race, or color. The Fair Housing Act
11: came into effect just, what, a week after Martin Luther King was assassinated. Was that assassination, did it play a role? And getting it passed.
13: Yes, it definitely played a role. The president at the time, Lyndon Baines Johnson, urged his colleagues to push this forward, not just to honor Martin Luther King Jr., but recall that the nation was being torn apart with racial violence and racial tension. And President Johnson was concerned about this. Just a few years later, the act was expanded where now pregnancy was covered. Sexual harassment, sexual orientation, language, sexual discrimination, disabilities, homelessness, families with children. It shows that the Fair Housing Act was a foundation and a foundation that had to be expanded. Housing is not just housing. It's about who goes to what schools. It's access to jobs. And so it's a piece of legislation that is very encompassing. When you look at these maps, you're an expert. What's the main thing that jumps out at you? You have a concentration of blacks that I showed, 1970, and that concentration is still there in Boston decades later. So to me, that's the first thing that jumps out. But the other thing that jumps out is that these areas also represent the demographic future of Boston. These are the same areas where we have black and Latino youth living. This is their community. And this is also very economically distressed. There's greater overcrowding in this area. There's greater unemployment. There's greater levels of poverty. And so that is also part of the story we have to come to grips with.
11: Okay. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. That's James Jennings, Professor Emeritus of Urban Planning at Tufts University, talking about housing discrimination in Boston on this, the 50th anniversary of the Fair Housing Act. You can find his maps at WGBHnews.org. Meantime, Ben Carson, the Trump-appointed head of Housing and Urban Development, denies reports that the enforcement of fair housing laws has been scaled back. This is All Things Considered.
14: Look what they did to Martin Luther, bullet holes and our kings. And they wonder why we never believe. And they wonder why we never believe. Nigga, we poor. Young niggas warned about that corner store, but the chinks on that. And you claiming that's your block. Who you think on that? Quicksand in the hood and we gonna sink on that. You should think on that poison water out in Flint. They let them little babies drink on that. They don't mm. care about us.
15: For more reaction now, we turn to Flint resident Carrie Weber. Carrie has been getting water out to other Flint residents since 2015. What did you think when you heard this program was ending, Carrie?
16: You know, I wasn't surprised because I have been saying since December this was coming because we knew the grant for the pods was up March 31st. I was so floored that they decided to close this because If you look at the city of Flint, 6,200 lines only have been replaced. That's barely a third. In fact, it's not even a third of what they're out there to replace. The EPA has warned everyone in Flint that when the work is done on the lines, they're banging on the lines, they're taking lines out, all of that. What it does is you see spikes in lead particulate and water. And it's not just necessarily at the house they're working on. It can be the houses next door and down the street, too.
15: Now, they're still going to be giving out free filters and replacement cartridges. Um, so why is that not enough?
16: Because, unfortunately, all the broken trusts in Flint, these are the same people that lied to us. These are the same people that called us crazy. These are the same people that said the people in Flint have to worry about lead. They can relax. There has been no trust restored at all. This is not restoring that trust either. I know for my family, I have my husband and daughter lead poisoned. We've lost three dogs to lead poisoning. There's no way we're using this tap water ever.
15: So when the state points to the tests that say, look, the community's water meets the government lead standards and the lead levels for more than two years have been well below the action levels set by the lead and copper rule, and we
16: need to move on,
15: how does that hit you?
16: Okay, we trusted them for 18 months. We had Legionnaires outbreaks they did not inform us of. We have mass lead poisoning of 100,000 people. How are we to now go, oh, yeah, these guys are telling us the truth? There has been no trust in the government from Flint. There's no trust restored. And here's my issue, Cynthia. Our lead line was replaced September 28, 2016. We were tested in November of 2016. Our lead is better. OK, back when the crisis began, we were at 1,800 parts per billion lead at my home. That was our highest rating was 1,892 parts per billion lead. We have been 1,300, 1,100. We were all over the place. Very, very high. Is our water better? Yes, it is. Is our water 46.1 parts per billion lead? Yes, it is. Is that three times the federal standard? Yes, it is. Do I believe the filters work? Yeah, I've seen the testing by people I do trust, which would be uh, Virginia Tech. So the filters do remove the lead. Will I take that chance? There's not a prayer that's ever going to happen.
15: Carrie, tell us about the people that you've been delivering water to.
16: The people I've delivered to are the homebound, the disabled, the elderly, those folks. When we first started, we were mass delivering water to everyone initially the problem was these folks were not having any water delivered these are the very folks that are the most vulnerable and the state was not delivering them water we had to really fight for that the state started delivering them water and it was 10 cases a week and for some families that was enough so i was kind of just filling in the gaps and i had about 25 families i was helping and i'm now at i think around 67 families i don't have like a finite count so at this point, knowing the pods are closing, I have promised folks I will deliver until the last pod closes.
15: And then what? What what resources would be there for these families once the state closes these distribution pods?
16: There is none. And sadly, the city has not supported them well. state of Michigan was to, delivering to 3,200 families. The city took over, and suddenly they're delivering to... 2,000 families. So where'd that gap come in? And that's where I started picking up more and more people because they're no longer on the list somehow. And nobody could ever, I took this to city council. I've talked about this ad nauseum that they're only getting four cases. That's not enough for one single person. Not only that, we had families, for example, Christmas, New Year's fell on a Monday. We had families that went three weeks without water delivery because there was nothing in place to deliver to them on another day. So the work has become just exponentially difficult.
15: And now these are closing, so there will not be free bottled water handed out from the state of Michigan. No. Will people in Flint ever trust government again? If so, what would it take?
16: I won't. The people in Flint I've talked to? No. All the emails that were foia everything that's out there. The fact that you have the MDEQ sending notes with smiley faces, And laughter faces talking about children being lead poisoned in 2014, looking at the lack of care for MDHHS, talking about people dying of legionnaires and, well, everybody has to die of something. All the way up to the EPA stating Flint isn't the city we want to go out on a limb for. At what point have they done anything to restore our faith? They have done the minimum level all the way along. They have left left the most vulnerable out to hang all the way along, and that's not okay. And we are on a very fixed income, my family is, which is how we all came to be poisoned as well. My husband and daughter are very ill because of their lead poisoning. We can't afford to buy water for us. I can't go out and buy it for others. So unless I can somehow come up with a way to get donations, which I've already been working on for two years without any real success, I don't see a way to help anybody anymore. And I did a Facebook Live on Saturday explaining to folks, and this is the hardest thing I've gone through, Cynthia, is telling these families I've serviced since 2015, I'll get to as many of you as I can. But when these pods close, I can do no more.
15: Carrie Weber has been delivering water to her fellow Flint residents since 2015. Carrie, thank you so much for talking with us today.
16: You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me.
15: The government's, the governor, Snyder, said in a statement his office put out Friday, and I'm quoting now, since Flint's water is now well within the standard set by the federal government, we will now focus even more of our efforts on continuing with the health, education, and economic development assistance needed to help move Flint forward. I remain steadfast in that commitment. His spokesman today added, Flint's water is the most monitored in the nation and is testing below lead levels seen in other cities in Michigan and around the country. You're listening to Stateside from Michigan Radio.
3: We do not know whether the killer of Reverend Pickney and eight others knew all of this history. But he surely sensed the meaning of his violent act. It was an act that drew on a long history of bombs.
15: This is KUT. Four victims of the Austin bombings were people of color. Police say a recorded confession left by the bomber did not identify race as a motive, but the attacks have left some communities of color feeling targeted. As KUT's Saida Hassan reports, one group of residents wants to take the safety of their neighborhoods into their own hands.
17: Last week, a few dozen people gathered at the King Seabrook Chapel at Houston Tillotson for a community safety meeting.
18: The reason that we are here is not a pleasurable reason.
17: Robert Muhammad says the spate of attacks in minority neighborhoods has put many people of color on alert. In
18: traditional Black and Latino communities, their two brothers were targeted, their their homes were targeted, and they lost their lives.
17: In recent weeks, the nonprofit Austin Local Organizing Committee has held a number of meetings like this one. They're teaching residents things like how to protect their homes, when to call 911 versus 311, and how to organize neighborhood watches. The idea is to take a more proactive approach to protecting their communities. Sergeant Lawrence Davis, with the Austin Police Department, led the group through some basic home safety tips.
18: Lighting is the
17: cheapest form of security.
19: Light is cheap home. That light Davis
17: on. also spoke about the need for residents to get to know their neighbors, a point that city leaders have emphasized since the bombings. But as some audience members pointed out, it's not always that simple.
20: I live in a predominantly white neighborhood in South Austin.
17: Benjamin Yapon shared this story with Sergeant Davis
20: and I have a guy two doors over, and he recently put up an enormous uh, flag of Texas in his front yard. And he's got a lot of other fixtures in his front yard that make me really nervous. And around the time of the bombings, I'm thinking, man, I need to get to know my neighbors. But the last thing I want to do is go near that house.
17: Sergeant Davis says if someone makes you feel threatened, don't ignore that feeling. If you sent something suspicious, he says it's worth reporting and letting police handle the situation. A recurring theme throughout the discussion was that people feel a responsibility to take ownership of their neighborhoods. Robert Muhammad asked the audience to take advantage of upcoming self-defense classes. You have black men and women, listen
18: to what I'm saying, that are certified inner-city emergency responders. When they first started getting their training and they showed up to get their certifications... They would be the only black people in the room of maybe crowds of 100 and 200 people here in the city of Austin. And so I'm proud to say our sister, a black woman, is leading the charge at that
17: That woman is Christina Muhammad. She's a coordinator with 10,000 Fearless Austin. The group is holding free training sessions to teach people how to protect themselves.
21: But I don't want just to initiate a neighborhood watch. I want us to keep watch, but I want us to have some accountability also with that being alertness. So we want to bring in that other component in to watch, keep alert. You should always be on the alert, but also learn how to train and get involved.
17: Saida Hassan, KUT News.
22: What are you talking about? That's right. We move into Mississippi, and you know how that's spelled. M I, crooked letter, crooked letter I, crooked letter, crooked
23: letter I, hook back, hook back I. <laughs>
24: In Mississippi, some Republicans uh, have introduced legislation that uh, would expand. Uh, gang laws, laws aimed at gangs in Mississippi. Well before you jump to conclusions, you should know that uh, most of the gangs in Mississippi are actually white. Uh, And I clarify that because apparently a lot of people don't know that. But uh, I'm not the only one clarifying it. Uh, The good folks in Mississippi going after the gangs are clarifying it. But is that why people are pursuing this law and the law has not passed yet? Well, Senator Bryce Wiggins, who introduced it, said, it is not a Republican, Democratic, black, or white issue. So this is not about race, okay? And so let's find out how this has been enforced, what the situation in Mississippi is with gangs overall. Okay, so first, over the last year, members of the Mississippi Association of Gang Investigators worked to spread the message that not all gang members in Mississippi are African American Hispanic or another ethnicity, because they have to clarify that because it is often put out there by the media that it's that, and they have the, people have the wrong impression, and this reported by the Jackson Free Press. In fact, they warn many of the state's toughest gang members are now white, between the growing Simon City Royals, white supremacist groups like the Aryan Brotherhood, and biker clubs such as the Violent Bandidos, started by a white Marine in Texas in 1966. Who would later be convicted of murder. In fact, in August of 2017, uh, this same um, gang unit within the Mississippi government told the Clarion-Ledger that 53% of verified gang members, a number presumably pulled from the dozens of identified criminal groups in the state, are white. Now, do they also have black and Latino gangs? Of course they do. And uh, gangs like the Vice Lords, uh, which are African-American and are large in that area. And in fact- uh, Mississippi, uh, overall, as a percentage of their population, has the highest percentage of African-Americans of any state. So um, so f- the majority of the gangs are white. Of course, the majority of the state is also white. But there is actually a very um, significant uh, African-American population in Mississippi as well. I'm giving you all of the context, and so are they, which is good. Uh, so again, this uh, gang unit within the Mississippi government uh, As the Jackson Free Press explains, their recent message was clear. The state's gang investigators are not fixated on black gangs and do not want the expanded gang law in order to profile young people of color. So I love those reassurances, and it's a good thing, and it's a good education campaign. So, so far, so good. In addition, Maggie again, that's the group that we're talking about here, MAGI members, regularly provided examples of heinous crimes by white gang members such as the murder and dismemberment of a royal snitch on the coast in 2016. So not only are the majority of the gangs in Mississippi white and the gang members white, but they, it's not like they're softer gangs. No, vicious, vicious gangs. Okay, so now more. It is not talked about a lot in the push for an expanded gang law, but Mississippi already has a gang law in the books. The Mississippi Street Gang Act, passed in 2001, targets three or more persons with an established hierarchy that through its membership or through the agency of any member engage, engages in felonious criminal activity. So um, what they want to do is they want to expand that current law. Now, here comes the interesting part. That law already exists. And I just told you, they just told you over and over again, actually the majority of the gangs are white. So how was it enforced? The administrative office of the courts confirmed that from fiscal year 2010 through 2017, court disposition data showed that 97 people were processed under current gang law. All of them were black. So it's not that they don't prosecute white people at all. The guy who dismembered people was prosecuted. The other guy who started banditos was prosecuted for murder. But do they use this law? this specific law about gangs. Well, in the case of Mississippi, in these years, 2010 to 2017, that's a pretty large sample size. They never used it against whites. They only used it against blacks. So every once in a while, people will come out and they'll say, oh, we're just getting tough on crime. Hey, look, it's fair for everybody. I just wanna protect people. We're gonna be tough on crime. But oftentimes you'll find That in the enforcement, that it is not about being tough on crime. It is selective enforcement to be tough on a particular community instead. They are not the majority of the gang members in Mississippi, but they make up 100% of the people prosecuted for this gang law in Mississippi. That's the reality.
23: GG's up, little, little scrap, I got money, you hear me? Be a me. Money
6: in the Individual and structural racism in America has a profound impact on the lives of boys and men. Emily Badger, a writer for the New York Times Upshot, dove into data from researchers at American universities. Stanford, Harvard, and the Census Bureau, that reveals that black boys raised in America, even in the wealthiest families and living in some of the most well-to-do neighborhoods, still earn less in adulthood than white boys with similar backgrounds. Emily Badger is here to discuss her article, Extensive Data Shows Punishing Reach of Racism for Black Boys, and she's joined by Ibram Kendi, a professor of history and international relations at American University. Welcome to you both.
5: Hi, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be on the show. Emily,
6: I'm going to start with you. I mean, there's so much in this piece and in this report um, that is striking and and, uh, jarring. But one fact that really stood out, and I had to reread it several times, is that black men raised in the top 1% by millionaires were as likely to be incarcerated as white men raised in households earning about $36,000.
19: Wow! Hey, yo, drama. Hold up, sir. Hold on, hold on, Stop the motherfucking record. All right. I want you to Pondy replay drama.
14: Pondy replay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's give him one more chance, man. Run that shit the fuck
6: back. Black men raised in the top 1% by millionaires were as likely to be incarcerated as white men raised in households earning about $36,000. Can you can you please talk to me about that?
5: I mean, you're you're right. There are so many individual pieces of data in this study that are really sort of striking about the enormous inequality between black and white men, whether we're talking about incarceration, uh, you know, whether we're talking about sort of their adult outcomes and how much money they make. Uh, and, and all of them, that incarceration data in particular, really sort of point back to the central idea, which is that, you know, even when black and white boys grow up in very, very similar circumstances. You know, in families that earn the same amount of money, in, uh, you know, families that live in the same neighborhoods that send their children to the same schools, Uh, you know, black and white boys wind up growing up to be men who have very, very different outcomes. You know, the white boy almost all of the time is going to fare better in the economy, is going to earn more money. And, um, you know, I, I think one one of the first questions that we wondered when we were looking at this data was, you know, where does incarceration fit into this? I mean, the criminal justice system is sort of an inseparable part of the larger whole when we're thinking about, you know, how, how do black and white boys interact differently with the world when they walk outside of their homes? What's sort of shaping the very different life trajectories that they have? And, you know, so I think that, that one statistic that you mentioned is, um, you know this this really sort of striking uh, piece that 's not necessarily sort of the top line finding here, but it 's one of these little things that's sort of you know really essential to helping us understand what 's going on here
6: I think for a lot of people who read um, who read the piece were 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 struck by the the data and the numbers for sure um, because there they are there you know there's no sort of arguing those numbers, but I think it's also then important to bring it back into a context of actual culture and livelihood. Ibram, I want to ask you, how do you think certain stereotypes of black men factor into these economic disparities?
9: Well, I, I think those stereotypes or those racist ideas are, are critical. Um, and so I think you had, of course, asked about mass incarceration um, and how richer black boys are, are more likely to be incarcerated than uh, more working class white boys, more um, than and i think it's because of our perception of, of the the black male body in particular as criminal um, as criminal until proven otherwise and so personally you know i actually was i think in some ways part of that data set i was born in 1982 and and i i can recall countless times um and i grew up in a middle income home and i can recall countless times in which i have been suspected uh by the police as a criminal in which i was followed in particular types of ways and suspected when my white male friends were not uh and so i, I think you know this concept of, of of black boys is dangerous and black neighborhoods is dangerous uh, i think is, is certainly a factor in these in this data
6: and do you think also that those that those perceptions and those stereotypes are then internalized uh by by black boys and men
9: i think they Are in certain types of ways. So I I write about the ways in which um, black people have internalized racist ideas about about black people. Um, But even something as simple as, you know, every morning when I put on my hoodie and and, and run and go to the gym, I'm conscious of the fact that people uh, are seeing me as a threat when I cross the street and, and head by them. So I may not necessarily do certain things to make people feel safe. So there's, there's many different ways in which it's internalized. And I think one of the ways it's internalized is because black black boys and men know people perceive them as a threat. So we try to figure out ways to allow people uh, to not view us as such. That's why some black men will never wear a hoodie, or some black men always dress up on suits whenever they leave the house.
6: Emily, the lead of the story is that black boys raised in America, even in the wealthiest families uh, and living in some of the most well-to-do neighborhoods, still earn less in adulthood than white boys with similar backgrounds. How much less?
5: Uh, it, you know it's a substantial amount I mean we're what these researchers were looking at is they're sort of dividing up um, the income spectrum in America into percentiles and saying you know if you're born at the 60th percentile in America uh, if you're raised in a family that way you know how much money are you likely to make by the time you get older um, you know and do do children raised at the 60th percentile make uh, themselves you know something equivalent to the 60th percentile and it's this quite striking gap of about 13 percentiles between black boys and men, where, where effectively white men are making that much more than, than black men are. That's consistent from, um, you know, whether they're born poor or whether they're born in really wealthy households. And, you know, we're, we're talking over the course of a lifetime about, you know, tens of thousands of dollars that, that add up. I mean, this, this is sort of a snapshot of how much men are making uh, at a given point when they're in their mid-30s, when they're mid-career and fairly well-established in the economy. But, you know, when you translate those numbers into sort of the cumulative effect years, Year after year after year. I mean, this is how, you know, the, this problem of income inequality compounds and translates into an even bigger problem of wealth inequality. Right.
6: Right. I was going to say that I think it's important to also look at the difference between wealth and income, right?
5: Yeah, that's exactly the case. I mean, this, there's a lot of different ways to think about economic inequality, and income is just one of them. And, you know, income means something significantly different from wealth, although the two are related. But what these researchers are looking here is, is specifically measures of income because they're looking at effectively tax filings, IRS data, on some 20 million children who grew up in America. You know, Doc, Dr. Kendi, me, I'm in this data as well. Basically everyone in America born between 1978 and 1983, who's now in their mid to late 30s, you know, how much are you uh, how much are you claiming now when you file your taxes? So they have very, very good data on how much people are making in their income, uh, but they have less good data on, uh, you know, how, how wealth fits into the picture. And obviously wealth is an important part of this picture too because there's really substantial differences between the amounts of wealth that black and white families have access to because that is something that accumulates across generations. You know, that's something that sort of is related to – how much money your grandparents were making, your great-grandparents were making.
6: I'm speaking with Emily Badger uh, from the New York Times and Ibram Kendi, uh from American University. Ibram, you're quoted in the article, um, uh, the New York Times article as saying, one of the most popular liberal post-racial ideas is the idea that the fundamental problem is class and not race, and clearly this study explodes that idea. Um, let's break that down. Uh, it, it's, it's one of those, it's one of those uh, ongoing um, arguments uh, that we hear. It's about class, not race. So let's, let's talk about it in very salient terms.
9: Sure. So I think to to think about it very simply, typically liberals are willing to admit that there is some sort of racial problem, meaning they they look out at the racial disparities and see a problem, um, and they typically see that that problem is stemming from discrimination. While conservatives are less likely to admit that there's even a problem, and, and certainly less likely to admit that that problem is stemming from discrimination. And then the question becomes, what type of discrimination? And so what became popular, particularly during the post-racial era, was this, among liberals, was this idea that the problem of discrimination was the problem of economic discrimination. And so that if we only sort of uh, allow black people to rise in the economic ladder, then those disparities, those racial disparities will wither away. While this study shows that that problem is actually not a, a problem of class, but a problem of race. Or the problem is not a problem of economic discrimination, but it's probably a problem of racial discrimination.
6: Emily, in the study, there's also um, an attempt to identify neighborhoods where poor black boys do well and as well as whites, but there were few neighborhoods that met the standard. Uh, But parts of Maryland, suburbs of Washington and corners of Queens and the Bronx, what were some of the characteristics of these neighborhoods that helped poor black boys succeed?
5: Yeah, it's one of the other really remarkable and, and depressing, in fact, uh, points about this study was that the kind of neighborhoods that you're describing are so, so rare. I mean, Basically, in 99% of America, the white boy is going to do better than the black boy is in the economy when they grow up, even if they start in very, very similar circumstances. So the, the researchers then ask, okay, that, that 1%, uh, where this is not true, what do we know about those places? Can we take the things that we learn about those places and use that to try to apply lessons and create policies for the rest of America. So there, there were a couple of common factors of these, these very few neighborhoods where black and white boys are both doing well and they're doing equally well. And, um, you know, one of them is that the, these are communities that tend to have low poverty rates. This is perhaps not surprising. These, these aren't places that, you know, are dealing with really endemic poverty. Uh, they tend to be located in uh, regions where on some kinds of tests it appears as if whites discriminate against blacks less, um, you know, this is probably not the most ironclad finding in the whole study because whether or not people discriminate is a very, very difficult thing to measure, Mm -hmm. but to the extent that we have some data on it, it it looks as if in places where there's less discrimination black boys are doing better. And they're also doing better in communities where there are a lot of lower income black children who have fathers at home. Uh, And this is this really sort of interesting and, and in some ways kind of perplexing finding of this study. Because what that's saying is not, you know, black boys do well when they have their own fathers at home. They're saying black boys do well when they live in communities where there are other fathers around. You know, they're, they're, they're describing something about the quality of a neighborhood, not about the quality of a household. And, you know, exactly what that gets at, the researchers can't say. We don't know if this is a story about, you know, black children growing up with black men around them who are mentors, who are role models, um, you know, who may be sort of functioning in their lives in some other way or, or who may just be sort of indicative of other circumstances of the community. But, you know, that, that's of the sort of intriguing pieces of this study that uh, other researchers need to pick up and figure out a lot more about.
6: Ibram, what are your thoughts on that? I mean that was really striking to me as well um, that it that black fathers played such a role.
9: So I mean I I think in 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 Emily's uh, article that she pointed to um, both the the factor of models uh, and mentors as well as communities that may have lower incarceration rates and, and better job opportunities. And I would probably lean towards the latter, uh, that the presence of, of, of black fathers and black men uh, in a community is going to clearly, or greater presence, I should say, uh, than other communities is, is clearly a result of them not being as likely to be incarcerated and have better opportunities. So, so therefore boys coming up in that environment are less likely to be incarcerated and are more likely to have, opportunities when they work hard their their hard work will be will be rewarded um and and so it it, it that's what it seemed like to me but i think it's something that i think we should be investigating uh, as opposed to what's wrong with these black boys
0: Washington lawmakers tried but failed this year to repeal the death penalty. Now the Washington Supreme Court could decide whether it's constitutional. Olympia correspondent Austin Jenkins reports.
20: The constitutional challenge to the death penalty in Washington involves the case of Alan Eugene Gregory. He was sentenced to death for the 1996 rape and murder of Jeannie Harshfield in Pierce County. Gregory is one of three African-American men on Washington's death row. His lawyers argue that black defendants in Washington are more than four times as likely to be sentenced to death. They cite a study by University of Washington researchers Based on this, Gregory's lawyers are asking the Washington Supreme Court to find the state's death penalty scheme unconstitutional. The Pierce County Prosecutor's Office argues that the racial disparity study is fatally flawed and should not be considered by the Supreme Court when it makes its decision. It's not clear when that decision will be issued. Separately, Governor Jay Inslee has issued a moratorium on executions while he's in office. I'm Austin Jenkins in Olympia. Ladies and gentlemen gentlemen, gentlemen, of the the jury...
15: In most Washington counties, juries are all white. That's true even when there are people of color in the jury pool. And Now the state's highest court has adopted a new rule aimed at reducing that outcome. KUOW's Patricia Murphy reports. Research has shown lawyers are more likely to strike people of color during jury selection. In the past, the courts have allowed challenges if an opposing attorney suspects racial discrimination. But ACLU of Washington spokesman Doug Honig says that wasn't effective because it's hard to
23: prove.
25: The new rule actually lays out very specific
26: examples of implicit bias, which are excluding jurors who have a close relationship with people who've been arrested or convicted of a crime, or living in a high-crime neighborhood, receiving state benefits, or not being a native English speaker.
15: A study by Duke University found that all white juries convicted black defendants 16% more often than white defendants. Researchers also found the gap was nearly eliminated when at least one member of the jury was black. Washington is the first state in the nation to adopt this rule. It takes effect at the end of the month. I'm Patricia Murphy,
27: KUOW News.
7: Mama says police you black people. Is it true? Uh, yeah, is it true? Is that true? Yeah, is it yeah, true? Is that true? Is it true?
22: Same situation, same tragic end. This time in Sacramento, where marchers fill the air with screams, cries, and chants of no justice, no peace their anguish and anger fueled by the fatal shooting of Stefan Clark. On Sunday, March 18th, the 22-year-old Clark became another grim statistic in the long list of unarmed black men gunned down by police. Watching the news reports of the demonstrations, one call-out to the crowd stood out for me. Someone yelled, ''Let's fire the people who fire the police.'' Those words actually reflect a shift in strategy for some activists. No more singular focus on getting rid of accused police officers and police chiefs. Increasingly, activists are targeting district attorneys, often the last line of defense for police officers. Sadly, it is common for district attorneys not to bring charges against police officers. Even so, it was shocking that nine days after Clark was shot, state prosecutors announced they would not bring charges in another deadly police shooting, that of Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge in 2016. The Justice Department had determined there was not enough evidence in May of last year. But just six days after the no charges announcement, the police department released a graphic police cam video of the Alton Sterling incident, again released after the cops' actions were deemed appropriate. But I defy anyone to watch that stomach-turning video and come away thinking the police officers' actions didn't lead to Sterling's fatal shooting. And I don't feel better that the police department released the video and simultaneously fired Blaine Salamone, the officer who killed Sterling at point-blank range. His partner, Howie Lake, was suspended for three days. I know the law gives police officers wide latitude to to shoot-to-kill if they feel themselves to be in imminent danger. And no matter the circumstance, pattern and practice suggest officers can rely on district attorneys to have their backs. How else to explain the failure to prosecute in notorious cases in Ferguson and Minneapolis and elsewhere? It's why activist Sean King recently created the Real Justice PAC, or Political Action Committee, to help elect what he calls reform-minded prosecutors. Describing local district attorneys as the gatekeepers of America's justice system, King says the PAC plans to distribute more than a million dollars to support progressives running for DA across the country. Black Lives Matter, too, is working to target DAs with a track record of refusing to bring charges in police brutality cases. And the nonpartisan ACLU has kicked off a national voter education and outreach campaign designed to explain district attorneys' impact on criminal justice. The group says more than a 1,000 local prosecutors are up for election this November, including the campaign for Massachusetts Suffolk County District Attorney, long held by retiring Dan Conley. The Suffolk D.A. will implement the brand new criminal justice reform bill with big changes in sentencing and rehabilitation programs. Whoever wins the seat needs to know voters like me are looking for a D.A. who understands the priority is justice, not unconditional loyalty to police. I'm Callie Crossley, WGBH, Boston's local NPR.
13: This is my rifle. There are many like it, but this one is mine. is my best friend. It is my life. I must master it as I must master my life. Without me, my rifle is useless. Without my rifle, I am useless. I must fire my rifle true. I must shoot straighter than my enemy who is trying to kill me. I must shoot him before he shoots me. I will. Before God, I swear this creed my
24: rifle and myself are defenders of my country we are the masters of our enemy we are the saviors of my life so be it until there is no enemy but be
21: The mass shooting in February at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Florida kickstarted a national debate about gun violence, largely driven by the school's students. But not everyone there feels like they're being heard. Nadej Green of Member Station WLRN reports that some black students are taking this moment to make sure they are visible too. Tia Amoy Roberts is a junior at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School.
4: The reality of the situation is issues pushed by my white peers get more media coverage, because that is how it is, and that is how it's always been.
21: Roberts is very involved on campus. She's a step-team dancer, vice president of a mentorship group, and part of the school's debate team.
4: And so how do we push and make sure that our voices are heard as well? We just keep talking. A few days
21: after she participated in the March for Our Lives protest in Washington, D.C., Roberts and some of her Black classmates called a press conference. They wanted to highlight youth activism around gun violence has long been a part of the Black Lives Matter movement.
4: Yet we have never seen this kind of support for our cause, and we surely do not feel that the lives or voices of minorities are valued as much as those of our white counterparts.
21: Roberts doesn't think most news stories about the school represent her and her non-white classmates, and they want people to see gun
4: violence in all its forms. Gun violence is also police brutality, and we know that, you know, police brutality disproportionately affects Black people and people of color. And so when talking about gun violence, we do have to have the conversation about race.
21: She gives her most visible classmates in the Never Again movement credit for addressing racial disparity. This is David Hogg in a Twitter live stream event.
0: If this happened in a place of a lower socioeconomic status or a place for, like, a, a, a Black community, no matter how well those people spoke, I don't think the media would cover it the same.
21: A week before the shooting... Roberts helped organize a Black History Month show at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. The day of the show, they decided to address a student letter in the school's newspaper, entitled All Lives Matter. Mei-Ling Ho-Shing is a junior and was one of the student organizers.
4: The rebuttal was pretty much saying that the Black Lives Matter movement is a respected movement. And just because you don't have to experience it does that mean that it's, you know, it's absurd and ridiculous that you don't have to experience the fear that when you have, take out your phone or go to get your ID, you know, that you may be shot.
21: On stage at the assembly, the student reading the statement, her mic got cut off. The school district says it was an unapproved presentation. Hoshing says that feels like a double standard. Right now, students from her school are being applauded for not asking for permission. They're speaking out, walking out, and making their voices heard. Ho-Shing's mom saw how upset her daughter was when she got home from school that day. After that, and after the school shooting... Vicky ho encouraged Mei-Ling to channel her frustration into activism.
22: You can't be full-out angry girls. They're going to say, you're the angry Black girl. How do I interject my views? How do I influence change? How do I organize my friends? How do I get us all on one shared platform?
21: For Tia Amoy-Roberts, this is an opportunity to have those conversations, even if they are uncomfortable.
4: Marjorie Stoneman Douglas is like a microcosm for the real world. Like, oh yeah, Tia, you're black, but like, you're not black, black. But it's like, yeah, yeah, I am. I've had to tell so many people not to say the N-word. Oh man, sorry. I thought we were cool. Just do not say it around me.
21: Since the shooting, Roberts says she's seen her classmates have thoughtful discussions about the intersections of race and gun violence and even police shootings. For Roberts and her friends, they just want to make sure their voices and the voices of other students of color are not left out. For NPR News, I'm Nadege Green in Miami.
4: If, uh, if I was white, then I'd be better off. Isn't that true?
14: Then I turned back. Um, I turned back. I turned back and then um, I heard the gunshot.
6: This freshman student recounting his walk to school this morning that took a terrifying turn.
24: His decision to stop and ask for directions nearly cost him his life. It's our top story tonight.
6: 14-year-old Brennan Walker missed the bus this morning, and when he tried to remember the route, he got lost. That's when he decided
24: to knock on someone's door, and that knock was met with yelling and eventually gunshots. 7 Action News reporter Brian Abel talked with the Rochester high school freshman and his mother tonight, and... Brian, first off, he's okay?
1: He is okay. The man actually missed as Walker was running away. Now, this all started when Walker missed his alarm, and he says that this is where the bus, it comes down, it loops around, and it comes back. So he started walking up this street to try to redo the route, but he wouldn't make it to school, and now his family is questioning if race played a role. The shock of what happened this morning hasn't seemed to set in for 14-year-old Brennan Walker.
14: You know, I don't know how you process getting shot at <laughs> for asking for directions. After missing the bus, he thought he knew the route well
1: enough to walk the roughly four miles of school. He didn't, so he stopped at a home and knocked.
14: I knocked on her door a few times, and she came down yelling at me Like before I could say anything. and I was, She thought I was trying to break into her house. I was trying to explain to her that um, I wanted to... Get directions to go to my school. I told her that no, I go to Rochester High. I'm just looking for directions to Rochester High.
1: Instead of helping him out, Walker and his mom, Lisa, say security video from that home shows a
21: woman yelling to her husband. The man of the house came down, pretty much just grabbed a shotgun and would sh- shoot at my son.
14: I saw, saw it, like him holding it like this through the window. And you know, I guess I put my hands up, I don't really remember. And I started to run, I looked back behind me, I saw him aiming at me, then I turned back, um, I turned back, I turned back, and then um, I heard the gunshot, and I tried to run faster.
1: Thankfully, the shot missed. But If someone
8: is running from your house, and you chase them outside and shoot at them, you're going to have criminal
1: charges coming from us. Both Walker and his mom believe race was a factor.
21: After watching the video um, and hearing the wife say, why did these people choose my house, I knew it was racially motivated. I don't know what other these people she possibly could have been talking about. He was by himself.
14: I didn't want to believe that that type of stuff would happen here.
1: And to make matters worse for Walker's mom, she says her husband is special forces
21: deployed in Syria.
14: Both of my men are
21: (laughs) at risk. You know, and they're both trying to do the right thing. So it's just like, what do you do? This one's fighting for the country. This one's trying to get an education.
1: And Oakland County Sheriff Mike Washard says the man who pulled that trigger, he is in custody tonight. Reporting live in Rochester Hills, Brian Abel, Seven Action News.
24: Brian, thank you.
1: Also,
22: allow me to apologize to other families formed through transracial adoption because I am deeply sorry that we suggested that interracial families are in any way funny deserving of ridicule
0: to the kids aunt, she knew that they are dead but she had no idea went over the cliff the detail that really hit hard it's also bothering her attorney who has always held on to this case and held on to those files a discovery that's brought her to tears as she's recalled the three kids she fought to keep in houston For Houston attorney Shonda Jones, there's a case she's never let go.
22: I cannot understand why. It was just like something in my soul that was telling me to hold on.
0: A decade ago, she represented a Houston woman who wanted to keep custody of her niece and nephews.
22: This is, uh, says Devontae and Jeremiah.
0: She lost, and the kids were given to a couple in Minnesota. Jones had no idea her file would come in handy a decade later.
22: When I saw the names, and I had spoken to my client the day before, and she told me she remembered, she said, Sierra. And, and um, I said, oh my God, when I read the article, I said, that's them.
0: Devante, Jeremiah, and Sierra were adopted by Sarah and Jennifer Hart. A couple weeks ago, police found the couple's SUV off the California coast. Authorities believe the couple plunged the vehicle off the cliff with their six kids inside. Days after, an investigation into child abuse began. Allegations that have hit Jones hard.
22: I know my intentions were pure, and I know I wanted to do the right thing.
0: But now, she's left to wonder. So? If she could have done more. Yeah. A painful thought not just for her. Jones says her former client is struggling to make sense of this tragedy.
22: I think she hears it, but she doesn't want to really believe it.
0: Jones never met the kids, but she does know of them. Devante made national headlines during a Portland protest over police violence when he hugged a white officer. The makings of a young man she wishes he and his siblings got to enjoy more of life.
22: It's just hard. It's very hard.
0: <laughs> Sorry. Jones says her client lost the children because she violated a condition by allowing the children's mom to watch the kids when she was at work. Their parents had the children taken. Away from them, she says, due to a drug problem. As for the accident, police have been able to identify three of the kids. They're still waiting the autopsy for a fourth body that was recently discovered, but they've not been able to find two others. Nick Notario, 13 Eyewitness News.
21: I'm truly honored and privileged to stand here before you to celebrate the life of Winnie Mandela,
8: a major figure in the apartheid
21: movement and of course the wife of our beloved Madiba Nelson Mandela. She is rightly known as the mother of this nation. But Mama Winnie was much more than that. She was a heroine of a whole continent. A courageous symbol of
10: resistance for all of us.
28: Good morning to you Gail.
10: Hi, Africa.
28: Um, I asked some listeners uh, which actress uh, really best portrayed the late Winnie Madikizela Mandela because she, she has been portrayed a number of times, both on the small mm. screen and the big screen. And many agree with my, um, uh, really, my praise of Naomi Harris and her sterling, sterling outing as Winnie yes. Madikizela Mandela in Long Walk to Freedom. Somebody saying, yes, That's Africa, amazing. Naomi Harris got Winnie almost perfectly. The script did help. And then another, Sally writing Hi Africa, I also finished watching Long Walk to Freedom with a new understanding and respect for Winnie. Um and, and that that and my earlier statements certainly taken I suppose in the wrong context by by by, by, by somebody listening. I'm not excusing Winnie matigizela Mandela's behavior. I'm not at all. I'm not there, there, there are many things no. that once we bury her, I hope we'll be able to actually examine about her legacy and and if nothing else, learn from those things. However, the kind of persecution mm. that she was consistently and deliberately put through by the apartheid government. How, how were we even supposed to expect any other result from Winnie Madikizela-Mandela?
10: But that's the thing is I, I think a lot of people who immediately jump onto the wagon and say, oh, well, you know, I actually think that they haven't given a good thought to how they might respond to being treated the way she... I mean, actually, the things that were done to her are absolutely horrendous. And how would you come out of it? I think people lack empathy to a large extent, and I think that they need to include that when they do jump. You know, I have this week been very interesting from that point of view. And and actually, I think that one of the things about portraying her in film, I have to say, is that because she was so very beautiful, one of the great advantages of having your story told on film is that you usually get a better-looking actress than you. And I have to say, in her case, I'm not calling the women who played her not beautiful, but none were as beautiful as she was. Very and I just true. thought of it but this week when I was doing the, the research, and I thought, goodness me, isn't that interesting? Usually you like, yay, I got Cameron Diaz, or yay, <laughs> I got...
23: <laughs> and then she's going, oh,
10: okay. She's she's very attractive, but not as attractive. Well, I'm sure she didn't think that. But I always thought that. Every time I saw on film, I was like, yeah, she's not quite as beautiful as the real thing. Mm, Because even... Yes, but I do do think her legacy... Well, it will be interesting to see how it pans out, but I I do think that people, a lot of people who are keen to sort of jump on the oh, well, do you know what she did, haven't really properly examined the kind of processes she had to go through and how you would... I mean, it's just appalling absolutely
28: appalling. No, indeed. Uh, I played back in fact an interview that Naomi Harris did on, um, well, obviously during the press junket around Long Walk to Freedom and she was talking of the difficulty that she had to go through in really identifying the seven distinct characters of Winnie Madikizela Mandela and putting all mm. of those into into uh, her performance uh, in Long mm. Walk to Freedom. Wh- who were some of your favourite actors, actresses to portray Winnie Madikizela Mandela?
10: Well, I don't know if you picked this up, but it's quite interesting. But local actress, Faye Ndukwana, actually played her twice. She played her in Goodbye Bafana in 2007 and in Endgame in 2009. I just thought that was quite interesting. (laughs) But she actually played the same character twice in different films.
28: I'm actually trying to remember um, her performances in both those. I did watch Endgame. I I, enjoyed it very much. But I don't remember her performance particularly. uh, Uh, particularly.
10: Well, yeah, I have to say it was 2009, and I'm afraid my memory, and I haven't had a chance to sort of go back to any of them. So I have to say I don't necessarily remember, which doesn't take anything away from her performance. I just simply don't remember it. But, but it was there is, there's been a few. I mean, Alfred Woodard play, played in in Mandela, which was made way back in 1987. And that was written by a South African screen screenwriter. So it's quite interesting. She's been portrayed in film a few times. And then even the star of the film we were going to talk about today, uh, Zatululomo, she actually played her in 2016 in Mandela's Gun, which had Tumash Tumash and Masho as the as Mandela.
23: Yes, so I remember that.
10: That, that. Lots of lots of Winnie movies been, but I do, and Sophie Canedo has also played her in Mrs. Mandela, which got very little play. I actually haven't seen that one. And if you look it up, you find very sketchy information on it. It was and a I BBC series, yes. I
28: think, a short one, like four yes, episodes or something yes, crazy and like and that.
10: I, I couldn't find it, you know, not much info on it. And then, of course, the the one in shame was Jennifer Hudson. Oh, that was horrible. Yeah. We should not even reference <laughs> it. Like, let's not, let's not reference it. So yeah, there's been a few, quite interesting. And then, and then in 1997, in Mandela and de Klerk it was Tina Lifford, another actress that I'm not, you know, she's not sort of well known. So it's quite interesting. I do think by Miles Naomi Harris. Did the, the
28: best job by miles. By miles, and not it only because, be and not only because we remember it the most because it was the most recent, obviously. But her performance on that screen was just—it really. Uh, I, you know, some of the detail that was in the movie relating to Nelson Mandela, I don't remember, but I can remember mm-hmm. absolutely everything uh, involving Nelson Mandela, and It has nothing to do with Idris Elba as an actor. He's a very fine Idris Elba as an actor. He's a very fine actor. But no, let, very good. Let's be real. The story of Nelson Mandela is primarily the story of Winnie Mandela.
10: Mhm. Absolutely. So it is interesting that she that she. It'll be interesting to see if perhaps now, maybe in a few years someone makes another one and perhaps does the definitive Winnie movie. I know that the documentary is that, and it's coming out next week, so we can all watch that in the interim, but... It is interesting. In fact, she makes, uh,
28: Winnie Mandela makes some interesting uh, statements there, including uh, a very uh, candid, I suppose, but very different uh, reason that she affords the divorce that uh, obviously she had to go through with Nelson Mandela. Mm. She's quoted as saying, My disappointment and anger boiled up when I saw him making those concessions, letting our Mm. persecutors go free, leaving the Mm. economy in the hands of white businessmen. Later, Mm. when Nelson told me he wanted to share the Nobel Peace Prize with their partner, President F.W. DeClerc declared mm. something inside me died. It was all of this mm. that gnawed at our love and led to divorce, nothing else. Mm. Um, she says. Obviously, Nelson Mandela giving yeah. you a very different reason as to why and they had course to, to be, was to be say,
10: divorced. Of course, two, you know, that's the thing is that the story is, you, is often told from the one perspective. Yeah. So, and like all stories, there's yours, mine, and the middle bit. Yeah. So, yes. So it'll be interesting to see how things pan out in terms of remembering her story and how it cha- you know how how the way people read it changes because I think people do change the way they analyse people's behaviour be based on what they know the more no, they sure. know
28: no for sure uh, it seems many many listeners agreeing with our assessment that Naomi Harris without a doubt is by far the best Winnie that we have seen on screen.
12: Context of white supremacy, Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, April 14th, 2018. So I have been told this is our weekly compensatory call in dial in. If you have thoughts, suggestions, commentary on any of the audio clips that we heard, uh, feel free the number 641 715 3640 the code 564943 pound press star 61 if you would like to participate number again six four one seven one five three six four zero the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate a few things before we get to the folks who dialed in the context of white supremacy is listener supported counter racist radio invest if you think the program is constructive you can visit my blog racism-notes.blogspot.com racism blogspot. You'll see the PayPal button in the top right corner. If you are not into PayPal, drop me an email and we will get you a mailing address. Uh, Tremendous thanks to all the folks who have supported uh, throughout the nine year tenure of the cows and folks who have helped uh, in the past few weeks, months uh, with the whole flooding. Uh, It has been hugely helpful. Uh, The the generosity is greatly appreciated, uh, has definitely uh, made the turmoil of the flood dislocation a little easier to manage. Uh, thanks again to all the folks who have supported. I hope the cows has been and continues to be worthy of your time and energy. Uh, you can also check out the wish list at Amazon.com under Gus T Renegade. Uh, thanks to all of the folks who've nabbed items from the wish list for years super appreciated I hope listening to the cows uh, has helped you get a better understanding of what white supremacy racism is how it works suggestions things we can do to solve this problem few other things Uh, first the documentary that they were referencing on the late grandcester Winnie Mandela That's the documentary that debuted on PBS back in Black History Month, February, uh, that I told folks about when everyone was uh, losing, well, when everyone was frantic about Marvel's Black Panther trash, Uh, and I was saying, hey, movie that I'm much more interested in, that I think is much better, and about someone who is a real-life freedom fighter, not a cartoon, Winnie Mandela. Check that out on PBS. I posted the link. You can watch it online uh you cannot watch it online anymore uh they took it down this week but you know you should be able to go to the library uh pretty soon and get the dvd you can watch it that way they will probably air it again on pbs and i'm sure it'll be available on netflix and other sites where you can download it or stream it or whatever the case but that documentary uh just aired in south africa this week and got quite a bit of attention and they were talking about it i Said When I saw it, it was very constructive. I hope people were able uh, to check it out. Lots of constructive info. Uh, next thing. the uh, That was uh, Naomi Campbell as well uh, from the services, memorial services for uh, Winnie Mandela yesterday in South Africa. Naomi Campbell spoke. She had a long relationship uh, with Winnie Mandela and Madiba and talked about that. But that was Naomi Campbell speaking at the memorial services. Uh, next uh there's an addendum get my one yoga story in for the week uh so last week on the compensatory call in i told you all about my favorite yoga instructor non-white female asian female has been super supportive and uh really helped me uh become much more confident do a lot more uh with my practice huge 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 difference cannot be Overstated in having a non white instructor and a race soldier for an instructor uh, cannot be overstated. I told you last week that we somehow ended up talking about white supremacy, racism, and policing in Seattle. And she initially said that she had a great opinion of the police in Seattle. She thought they were way better than police departments anyplace else. And all of her experiences have been. Uh, Wonderful. And uh, I did not, you know, respond by telling her, you know, that she was a fool or a coon or giving her my anecdotes. I responded by just saying that the Seattle Police Department has a federal monitor, which they do, uh, and that this has been in the newspaper for years. They've been talking about this, just like Ferguson. And She conceded, you know, she didn't, you know, keep up with the news too much. I think I've heard that before, said she didn't keep up with the news too much. And, you know, that sort of thing. Also, unfortunately, she has a white fiance, tragic arrangement that has a big impact as well. So we had that discussion last week. I mentioned it on the compensatory call in a week ago, the day after I told you all about this, I go to take her class and she says, oh man, Gus, I have a story for you. She says, so I'm taking the train to go to yoga class to teach, I guess. And she says, uh, security officer, they have fare enforcement officers on the trains in Seattle. F-A-R-E, fare enforcement, fare enforcement official uh, stops me on the train uh, and is shaking me down, demanding to see my uh, proof that I, you know, paid my ticket or whatever it is. Uh, for the train and she didn't have her uh, proof or stub or whatever you're supposed to show to you know verify that you paid so he's you know harassing and what are you doing and, raw, 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 and you know two dollars that's you know the whole budget for the state of washington and you know so on and so forth and so he calls another person another security person comes by and is like you know was she giving you a hard time do you need backup and uh this non-white female is maybe five feet tall We'll give her five feet tall. Um, I do not ask her to spot me for anything in class because I feel like if she does, if I tip over, uh, I will kill both of us uh, because she is so petite. Uh, But, yes, they apparently asked if if backup was required to subdue her in case, you know, she might get out of hand. I think that's a metaphor, excuse me, in case she does not comply Uh, and they feel threatened, as we heard in the sound clips. Uh, I think they did end up calling a sheriff in addition to the fair enforcement officials all over two dollars. I think that was what the fare fare was two dollars and she said i thought of you was like oh my gosh i cannot believe this i was just talking about how great the police are and now i'm getting shook down for two dollars and all of this harassment and calling all these people in and blah 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 and she said that's what i was thinking the whole time like oh my gosh i cannot believe this now i'm gonna have to go uh and tell gus that this happened and he's gonna cackle in my face be like I told you I told you which did not happen at all I did laugh uh, when she told me the story because she didn't get uh, tased or you know shot 50 times or anything like that Uh, but I did laugh uh, and I don't even think I said I told you so I laughed just because this happened but I was thinking they have a federal monitor this is not a situation of let me tell you how many times I got stopped by the police or my friends got stopped There is a white judge who decided, oh, yeah, you all are a little excitable with your nigger knockers. Going to have to get that under a federal judge. They have a federal monitor like the system of white supremacy causes a lot of confusion for non-white people and tragic arrangements amplifies it exponentially. But that is the addendum uh, to last week. And she said I. That must be a signal for me to reevaluate and not question when people are telling me accurate information because I was being dismissive and saying, oh, man, that Gus just thinks all about racism and tries to make it all about race and blah, blah, blah. That's what I was thinking. And then this happened. Maybe I'm supposed to reevaluate how I think about this. I said, wow, that's grand. And if if that is what happens, great. But she does as a tragic yeah, cowbell. Next, that segment. Well, they were talking about Devonte Hart, it was close to the end, uh, The what they call transracial adoption, where these two white lesbians apparently uh, drove over the cliff. I've said before for years on the program, when I was super confused earlier on the plantation, I did foster care work. I can tell you, unless they have massively overhauled the rules, which could be the case, but I don't think so. For this one rule, the protocol for foster care placement is If you have a relative, a relative placement is always, always preferable to going to some random stranger. You would definitely take the continuity of, well, if you can't be with mom and dad for a couple days or weeks or whatever, hopefully the short term arrangement is, you can at least be with a relative that you know and a place that you're familiar with. Oh, no, 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 no. They didn't do that for these black children. No, you can't stay with your aunt in Houston. We're going to send you with some white lesbians in Minnesota. Right, and that immediately reminded me of Dorothy Roberts, uh, who phenomenal information on the system of white supremacy in her books. She's been a repeated guest on the program. The second time she was a guest in 2010, her book Shattered Bonds goes directly to why out-of-state white lesbians can get priority for a black child over that black child's own family member who is in the same city, same state, and doesn't get custody. Oh, that was horrendous clip that is the system of racism white supremacy and it was a black attorney uh, that was you know giving the details about that case and talking about how she remembered it and you know her client and she was breaking down in tears and everything that's horrible all the way around and they left out of that clip uh, that they got uh, the information that those white lesbians at least the driver blood alcohol tent she was under the influence at the time of the crash. left that information out as well these folks could be opioid addicts and alcoholics to boot uh, next Uh, the segment about the young teen who went to school or attempted to go to school and just knocked on these race soldiers uh, residents For directions immediately reminded me of Jonathan Farrell. I think we had an extensive conversation back in 2013 about this very type of situation. If something happens, do you go knock on a random person's door? Do you take that risk? Is it worth it? What do you, we talked about this extensively uh, with Jonathan Farrell. I'm just glad it did not end up being uh, a fatality. This is one that I can again say, I just said that my uh, yoga instructor uh, who is phenomenal. I have lots of good things to say. She just, unfortunately, tragic arrangement. Uh, but she admitted she doesn't keep up with the news. She said, I don't read the paper. Not she got to read the paper to be informed, but she said, I don't keep up with the news. Many people, even some folks have called into this program and brag about how they don't keep up with the news. It's lies. I don't want to read that. Phil. Uh, okay. That report about that team that you just heard, A critical bit of information that they did not include about the white race soldier who picked up a shotgun in response to a black 14 year old knocking on his door. He was a retired firefighter. That was in the written report on The Washington Post. It was not on the audio report that you just heard. I think that that's critical because I think we've heard a lot of reports of late about firefighters being race soldiers more than they are concerned about putting out a fire or protecting anyone, or getting a cat out of a tree. It is nigger talker time, even for the fire department. But I thought that was real important, and he has been arrested. He's out on bond. He is facing uh, attempted murder charges. His name is Jeffrey Ziegler, uh, if I'm saying it correctly. Z-I-E-G-L-E-R. I I don't even think they said his name in the report. I thought that was a key omission as well. Uh, Last thing I will get in uh, before we get to the callers. We had several programs. I think that was the last program we did before the interim with the flood disruption to the broadcast about the black maternal mortality rates. I asked listeners if people thought you know that was legitimate or if people thought that was a racist lie. to just put out more propaganda about black people being defective and you know now we'll pile on black moms again that's something that they do on a regular basis i ask, i think most people the consensus thought it was uh, legitimate that black mothers because of the stress of white terrorism and not getting adequate resources and everything else probably are uh, having a lot of difficulties and health uh, a deleterious health impact uh, for pregnant black mothers. A lot of folks said that they thought that was logical. There were some listeners who said that they did not think this was true. They thought this was; these were just lies. The reason that I'm bringing this up is because, again, I'm seeing more attention being directed to this. The New York Times, they had an article about this uh, this very week on the front page. That's a lot of different reports that I've seen in a very short period of time since November in major outlets the la times the new york times the washington post these are you know the major publications that you can get across the country that millions uh, of people read on a regular basis so much attention being focused on this it is making me question now why are they bringing this up at this particular moment you know is this we now all of a sudden have some empathy for black pregnant black mothers really is that what this is about or is it just now is the time that they're focusing more attention on this issue if that is the case, great. Wonderful. If the result is that, you know, pregnant black mothers and children get more resources and more people are aware that this is another way that racism, white supremacy operates. Fantastic. That's constructive. But I am curious as to it just seems like it's getting uh, more attention. Uh, that's something that I wanted to address and see if people had any uh, thoughts, ideas on that. Number again, six four one seven one five three six. Four zero the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate. If you could take uh, about five minutes to share your commentary, that would be grand. Uh, it'll make sure everybody gets an opportunity to participate. Uh, if you know you are in a noisy environment, if you could use your mute button, that would be tremendous. Uh, just helps preserve the quality of the program. And then people don't have to struggle to speak over a lot of unnecessary racket. Uh, just mute your line. And then if you have additional comments, uh, you can unmute yourself and speak later. Uh, this is the compensatory call in. Uh, I would like to request if we could not use metaphors. Uh, I have said consistently, I think metaphors, analogies should be closely scrutinized. Uh, I have concluded racists, whites, one of the ways that they practice white supremacy is to skillfully employ metaphors to cause confusion, deception. They will deliberately compare and contrast entities and swear that they are identical when most of the time that is not the case at all. Uh, And this is a form of master. Deception, racism, victims of white supremacy, including myself, we have been exposed to this behavior for a long time. And many of us, including Gus T., we are still learning. So we have not come to conclusions. Sometimes we uh, do not have all of the logic necessary to articulate our thoughts or ideas. And so we will substitute a metaphor or an analogy frequently that just adds to confusion at minimum. It does not provide enough Detail, explicit detail. If we could try to be as direct, explicit as possible with what we want to say, that would be super appreciated. I will prompt about that. That's it. Uh, Folks have uh, commentary they would like to share. First few folks who dialed in with a hand up. Line should be open. Proceed. May I be heard? Uh, greetings, Red in Nevada. I got your back.
29: <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for taking my call, and hello to everyone um, who's listening and who will listen. Um, the, I have just a couple of things from the Las Vegas Review, Review Journal, um, kind of something that I've, I have guess I've been reading more lately. I do appreciate it. Um, actually, the clips, they kind of um, – are. are similar to what I'm going to talk about in the, in the articles. Um, the first one is at home water testing kits, uh, check for contaminants. And um, it basically, it does kind of, um, this article, it does uh, speak about how basically uh, the Flint water crisis, it's uh, beneficial for white companies who, pro- who produce these uh, water testing kits. And they said that there was a survey conducted by a, uh, filtration water filtration company showed 56 uh, percent of Americans worry about their drinking water and I can just assume Americans may be white but of course I could be wrong but even the, it just seems like that's kind of funny it's like you know you white people they're not ignorant to racism but they still worry that you know what is done to the negros might also be done to them um and it says that uh and then there was the uh, his name is Mark Edwards, the, the professor of civil engineering at Virginia Tech and one of the uh, scientists who uncovered the lead poisoning in Flint. He said that even if 95% of the waters out there are safe to drink and are meeting federal law, the fact that 5 or 10% is not, enough, is not good enough to justify, uh, I'm sorry, is good enough uh, to justify fear. Um, and then it kind of just talks about... Um, Like I said, there's just been one one business owner just says um, he's gotten more business because of the water of the crisis. And um, there was um, another expert says or someone who was who studies uh, environment um, said that Experts say U.S. has the best water supplies in the world, um, but aging m- municipal uh, infrastructure and other potential environmental issues mean that people shouldn't just take their water safety for granted. Um, and out here um, in Nevada, they say that lead—I'm sorry, copper—can leach into the to the drinking water. But they also say, well, um, this this area takes steps to protect the water, um, other contaminants. Um, like uh, arsenic and uranium, which are naturally occurring, can also leach into water. Um, and they also mentioned there's some uh, city water departments who offer free or um, subsidized kits. So it's definitely something that made me uh, feel like you know we should definitely all be taken into um, uh, more. We should all be more serious about what we're drinking because they, of course racist, white supremacists, they don't care about what they're uh, doing to the water or doing to anything really. And the last thing about this article was that um, just basically saying that we should just test the water um, annually because it can change. The other article, um, it just talks about um, gun violence and how Nevada kind of wants to um, take some of the laws or, or copy some of the laws in California, apparently, apparently California, they have a law, they have, a. it says California also has a program that allows law enforcement to recover weapons from people who have lost their right to own them. It says, you know, if you have a felony or if you're a felony, you no longer have the right to possess a weapon and we, we act on it and go after the weapon. Um, and then in the same article, um, it talks about a democrat from here from Nevada. uh they're saying that they want to finally um burn up in one of their in 2019 legislative legislative state uh sessions to um finally ban bump stocks and bump stocks is the same thing that uh even paddock used to kill all those white people so the white on white crime and of course in the same article they never mentioned shooting they always say october 1st as i've mentioned before they'll never say shooting they just say october 1st um then i uh, the last thing that i'll mention is the Devontae segment i definitely appreciate the information because it feels it seems like uh, prior to the um the information in that report they were just like oh well the white women they might have just lost control of the car. And then also it seems like some people were kind of I mean, Some people were kind of assuming that the family just didn't want the kids. So, I mean, it is definitely disheartening for me to hear that, you know, their, their family did want the children, but you gave them to these murders anyway, which, of course, it just kind of wasn't, It is what is to be expected um, in the system. And then also, I, um, I know a while back, me and my sister, she was actually going to be doing some type of work. I forgot what it's called but kind of being like a, a children's advocate um, and she's still in Ohio, but she's talking about how we don't really see or she's um, like uh, opioid addicts being, uh, having their children, white opioid addicts having their children taken away, um, you know, especially after that first offense. And uh, the last thing actually is the whole the stories coming out about the female birth rates or I'm sorry, the um, black maternity rates. Um, death rates increasing, I feel like that might be something that white people are putting out to kind of balance out the fact that their birth rates are declining. So maybe to give other white people a little bit hope that, okay, yes, even though we're not giving birth as high, as much, but at least black females are dying more during birth. And I'll meet my line. Thank you.
12: Hmm. Well, that's interesting. i think about that. That uh, Devante Hart, again, he's uh, the black uh, male adopted child, uh, these white lesbians out here in Washington state. So I've been told the Jeep just went off the cliff uh, and they apparently killed all these young victims, uh, non-white children that they had uh, abducted. Uh, the, yeah, they reported that that the alcohol level for these white racist mothers uh, was over the legal limit, and that there were no skin marks. The police have been saying that for a few weeks, no skid marks, that that's their suspicion that this was not an accident. This was not a whoops. This was not a slips that they did this deliberately and uh yeah that there were family members who did want the children way back in texas and yeah system of white supremacy other folks that we've not heard from at all if you have commentary
25: Oh, may I be heard? Yes, sir. Best. This is uh, thank you for um for the show. This is um Andrew. I'm in North Carolina. I've been a um listener and contributor to the show for the past four years. I really appreciate the work that you're doing and uh the people on the show. Greetings. Um I just want to uh, relate a story that happened um, to me a couple weeks ago. I was in the doctor's office, and this non-white black male was uh, pretty agitated in the waiting room. Um, He was cussing and just making a lot of um, um, complaints about, to a particular non-white black nurse who was um, in the waiting room. And um, so I'm sitting there and I'm watching it, and so she leaves, and he's still, he's just going on, he's cussing, upset, he's not getting served, he's not getting the service, and this white, uh, supposedly medical person comes out and talks to him and calms him down. He's talking to him and says, oh, you're a good guy, I'm not upset. And it was just amazing to see the transformation of this non-white black male as I'm sitting there, and you know, I'm thinking about the show, and just thinking about how confused uh, we are. And this medical person could have been an orderly or a janitor. Uh, he had those scrubs, but it was just amazing to see that happen. So I just wanted to relay that story, and I thank you again for your. I also want to say that. Um, as I said, I've been listening to the show for four, about four years, um, and a contributor. So I really appreciate the work that you're doing. I also turned the show on to my at the time thirteen year old son, who instantly fell so in love with the show. He's been listening to it. Uh he is um just an avid fan of the show as well. So again, thank you very much and uh, I'll mute my line.
12: Wow. Well, Glad to hear it. I hope it has been uh worthy of both you and your son's time and energy. Always, you know, appreciate hearing uh attempted parents uh trying to share constructive, accurate information with their offspring about white supremacy racism. That is spectacular <laughs> counter racist efforts. So uh major commendation uh to you uh for your efforts, sir. Again, I hope it's it's been constructive and what you what you shared about the the uh incident with this victim, I guess, being upset. And then whoever the white person, who knows if they were a doctor, nurse, janitor, who knows? Uh, That is the system of white supremacy. And if anything, that that young uh, teen, 14 year old teenage who went and knocked on those white people's door, that is centuries, generations of white terrorism produces that sort of conduct because white people are extraordinarily dangerous and even if even some of the most confused victims of white supremacy we understand on some level white people are very very dangerous and that generally is reflected in our behavior and how we behave with whites how we behave with non-whites i think that might relate to what you were uh what you observed unless i'm in error uh other folks that we have not heard from at all. Uh, if you have commentary you want to share, line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Yes, sir.
26: Oh, excellent. Uh, yes, uh, there's a lot I have to say. I honestly wouldn't know where to begin. But there is one thing that I'd like to talk about. Uh, maybe you in the audience actually have an opinion about that they'd like to share, but a few years ago, I was talking to a black male, and he was just <laughs> released from greater confinement. And of course, he wasn't very codified. And I brought up something to him about how I have this issue with plagiarism um, because For instance, like I use YouTube a lot, and I subscribe to a lot of other non-white activists, and I'm sure that some of us in the, in the audience now actually have done the same. And what I mean by plagiarism is, is it, it's this branding that I call branding is going on. It's what Fuller talks about, the cult of personalities. I understand that it's VGQ. But aside from that, there's a huge lack of codification, and I also understand that Pulitzer said that he's not necessarily looking for consensus, but I'd argue that's more so on an on uh, individual basis when you're dealing with one problem. However, um, with all these other YouTubers or social media, platform you want to go along with, when we're all talking about racism, modern currency, there's a lot of code-switching, and what I mean by irony is essentially, uh, for instance, if so popular, if you were to listen to something that Fuller says, a lot of people will retake it, and then they'll reword it in any kind of way, and it becomes a problem, because you're talking about the object. Where we're not giving objectivity to the objects that we're just we're talking about, so we'll just rebrand it as our own, so it can be distinctive from the other. And there's a huge issue with that because I say I call this synonymous speak, where I well I guess people call it um, false equivalencies, but I call synonymous speak because you say words that are similar and they're supposed to have the same meaning or similar meaning. However, there's distinctions. And regardless of how small of a distinction it is, it is still a distinction. For instance, if I were to say me and my brother have the same mother and father, however, we're still very much different. We are unique. And I have that distinction. And I feel like... Like with the synonymous speaking, it begins to, when you say that words have the same meaning, it begins to undermine the meaning of other words. Um, right now I'm saying all this stuff, I'm trying to think of an example. But uh, that seems to be a really big problem among a lot of us. So when we have the code in A code, for instance, and we're using them amongst one another, there's a lack of consistency, and it's something that i noticed a lot, and it's actually becoming a lot frustrating, because now the term white supremacy, racism, making, there is a distinction between white supremacy and racism, but generally speaking, they are the same, and a lot of times people code switch You still have people saying racism and white supremacy, or and, again, you would have to ask the person to define their terms, which is understandable. Uh, it's almost as though, like, none of these individuals who have these, are on these platforms are actually listening to each other and saying, oh, and adjusting. Like, the consensus should be in their understanding of the objectivity, not so much of how they want to rebrand things and present it to other people, if that makes any sense. Uh, but there's a whole lot of that, and I would like to just say that to encourage a lot of us to be a little more codified. Listen to how others speak and when have they define things, and then if we have to make adjustments, whatever. But if we're talking about something, give it some objectivity. Allow, you know, if it means something, it means something the same for everyone. It's like having a child; Two parents are discussing. A, a matter about the child, but then the child's not there to really be there, have anything to say. It's almost like um, when Fuller says about gossiping, and gossip has a derogatory connotation. So a person would say they're not gossiping, but if you are talking about someone to someone else, and the person you're talking about is the present, then you're gossiping. That is something that we all do as Fuller stated, it's one, maybe you probably shouldn't say it, but the person may need to be there to, to hear what you have to say. And two, um, uh, what was it, the second little... Um,
12: 30 seconds? Uh, oh, okay, yeah. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, what
26: you it if that person was present. And... um. So, for instance, if you had a term like offense, it has a derogatory connotation. If I was to take an axe and slam it against a tree, the tree wouldn't say anything. But the tree would be offensive, offended.
12: And we will leave it there. I heard a a, a number of uh, metaphors, similes specifically, uh, the child conversation with the parents and axe in the tree. Mm-hmm. I heard a, uh, quite a few, uh, and we are supposed to be refraining from metaphors on the compensatory call-in, and I didn't quite get like a specific example of what the problem was. If I, You can let me know if I understood what you said correctly. If the problem that you're seeing, or something that's causing you frustration, mm-hmm. is that uh, you're seeing other victims of racism, non-white people, who are sharing their views on racism and i guess they are taking some of the material from mr fuller or whoever the person happens to be but they are changing the words they're not saying it exactly the same way and i guess for you you're thinking that it is a problem uh because it's not presenting uh, a consistent uh consistent accurate message when we talk about the issue is that the crux of what you're saying it's you i think you said it's more about personality and just creating a new brand so that i can come out and talk about this in my uh kind of different style uh, but it's lost some of the consistency accuracy is that kind of the the main point you were getting at correct okay
26: that that's pretty much
12: right okay With that, I would say I think that's why Mr. Fuller has at the beginning of the uh, book, uh, if you don't understand racism, white supremacy, you can all, you know, fill in the red or I (laughs) I assume many of you can fill in the rest of it. If you have the book, if you uh, do not know the rest of the sentence, get Mr. Fuller's book. Look on the first page. Uh, Next, I've heard Mr. Fuller talk about this and he has uh, expressed concern. He also has heard this where people uh, take. Concepts that he's talked about, things that he said or written, and they'll change them slightly uh, and not reference them at all. Like you know, not say, hey, well, you know, Mr. Fuller says blah blah blah. They won't do that at all. They'll just try and you know present it as theirs. Sounds a little different. He's aware of this. Uh, you can you know point that out if you see that happening. Always asking for definitions. Uh, I know Dr. Welzing. She talked about this uh, some years ago and saying that you might see more people using the word white supremacy, because I think that was also a part of what you mentioned as a concern. You might see more people using the word white supremacy, but there is a big difference in using the word white supremacy and having an accurate understanding attached to an accurate definition of white supremacy. And I think could be an error, but I think that was why she shared her definition so consistently. And I, or at least my suggestion would be, is do not be frustrated. Uh, you have lots of non-white people who have been told by many racists that they're experts on racism just because they're black. And then, you know, they watch a video or two or what have you and just, I mean, there's been a lot of that. So you have a lot of victims of white supremacy who are confused about racism, but they think that they are very informed. Uh, That's, you know, a big part of this problem as well. I think it's very important to just acknowledge we're still learning as long as racism, white supremacy exists. Try not to be frustrated about that. If anything, expect more of what you're seeing. And if anything, I would say. Try to be as codified as you can in terms of if you want to ask questions, particularly asking for definitions. I think that's one of the best ways uh, anyone, if you're observing problems or if you have concerns about communication uh, with racism, definitions definite not just definitions for racism, definitions for terms like codification or objective. just asking people for definitions can do a lot uh, to get people to be a bit more codified. Uh, A bit more alert about what they're saying uh, and maybe even more accurate uh, with what they're saying definitions asking you because I mean, you could do that on people's channels if they're making videos or what have you, you can just uh, post and ask them to define, you know, let's get definitions for your terms and see if they can do that. If they can't, that's good to know as well. Uh, hopefully that makes sense. If other folks have uh, suggestions or comments for the listener's concern or questions that he raised, you can share as we proceed. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have a hand up, line should be open. Proceed. Can
30: I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, how's it going, everyone? Uh, right this is later. a blackmail engineer calling in. I wanted to share some things I learned about uh, some terms um, about Israel and, uh, quote unquote, Jewish people. So I'm going to define some terms. I'm going to define Zionism. Zionism is the belief that Jews have a right to establish an ethno-nationalist state in Palestine. It was founded by Theodore Herzl. I'm going to find anti-Semitism is a belief, the belief and treatment of Jewish people as a race. Um, If you look at Israel, it is currently a settler, colonialist apartheid state. Um, There are these Jewish people called Ashkenazi Jews. And these Jews are mostly converts, but these are your quote-unquote white European Jews. Uh, You'll see these people in New York, Washington state, um, very liberal areas, um, very cosmopolitan um, cities in the U.S. Um, Israel is a highly militarized state, and they, they develop advanced weapons for sale. This is an issue because four out of five of the police squadrons or armies in during the Ferguson uprising were trained in Israel. Um, Israel developed a new form of tear gas that can cause seizures for 24 hours. And they're currently using it in Palestine. And Israel has taken over the area known as Palestine, which is the original name for the area. And these white European Jews have completely taken over a new land, and they currently own 70% of the place called Palestine. Um, When they were picking out that area of the world, they originally had more than one choice. Uh, They wanted to see about Uganda, um, Egypt, uh, Palestine, parts of Syria, and essentially um, the nation known as Israel, the colonialist apartheid state known as Israel, is planning on taking over the whole of the Middle East and eventually um, most of East Africa. See, um, the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, they train. They have trained the Atlanta PD, the NYPD, the Boston PD. Um, there is a black male known as Bakari Sellers, and he is a part of the APAC. And it's the political arm of Zionism. Excuse me, that was a metaphor. It is the political party of Zionism. Adam Sandler is also a high-ranking Jew, um, white European Jew. And he was involved in a movie called Don't Mess with the Zohan. And the whole movie was about uh, this Jewish Israeli Defense Force member, race soldier policeman, hunting down Palestinians. Um And, oh, I wanted to comment on workplace racism. I was denied a promotion. This ties into one of the clips that was shown earlier about the differences in uh, wealth and income between black males and white males and black people in general. And I was denied a promotion. And the time period for one promotion to the next is a year. So essentially uh, two promotions, from where I am currently would allow me to gain a significant amount of money upwards of $10, to ten to $15,000, but I was denied those promotions. So compared to my other peers, my white male peers, they have already received these promotions and I'm currently a year and a half behind them in terms of income. So they've been earning about ten to $15,000 more than me for about a year and a half going on two years. And I'll end it there. Thank you.
12: Workplace racism, neutralizing workplace racism, Thursdays, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Did they, or was the denial of the, was this a recent denial or are you just, you know, including that because the report coincided with your terrorism that you've experienced?
19: It was recent to
30: about a year and a half ago, about a year ago. Um, But Um, I I included it just because I heard that clip and it made me think about
12: I'm in this exact situation. Mm. Aren't we all? What what was the verb or do you recall what the reasoning was that they gave when they denied you your uh, promotion?
30: Uh, I was told that my work was not up to par and that I um, sounded confused when I would speak about my work assignments and... I was told that my behavior was, um, quote unquote, unacceptable or that it was unsatisfactory. Um, that was interesting because my team lead was actually praising my behavior during the time. He said I was at a very upbeat attitude. I got along well with everyone. But still, somehow, the upper management said I had behavioral issues and they said I was taking too long to do assignments and I wasn't taking um enough of the team workload but i had like documentation that showed that i was doing more assignments than veterans uh in the department
12: standard operating procedure for racist man racist woman in the workplace uh economic terrorism uh we just talked about that uh this past week and then they justify their economic terrorism with you know uh, Workplace Racism Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, definitely appreciate you. Uh, I know that is certainly not something that, yes, I want, I'm want. i excited for the opportunity to talk about when I was denied a promotion at work. Like, yes, that's exactly how I want to spend my Saturday evening. But that I think that's important uh, in terms of how we learn how the system works. Uh, other folks that we've not heard from at all, uh, if you have commentary you want to share, line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Greetings, Emmy.
31: Greetings, everyone. Um, I wanted to comment specifically on the, um, the Winnie clip, I suppose is a way to put it. Um, I did watch the documentary that aired on PBS and I thought it was, um, very well done i'm not even so sure why they're suggesting that a film be made because i felt that the documentary should stand cuz she speaks a lot like even at the age that she is now and like she's she's in there a bit and i wanted to say that um she was and is absolutely stunning um i thought the same thing when i watched the documentary i'll admit i didn't really know too much about miss winnie mandela i honestly. Didn't and still don't know too, too much about Nelson Mandela. But I learned a lot from watching that documentary. Um, her role and who she was and how she spoke. Um, after watching the documentary, I just, I have so much admiration and respect for her. Um, just in the same way, like she made me feel similar to how Dr. Weldon will make me feel when they speak. Um, exuding such a high level of self-respect and confidence and class and it's just um, reassuring and comforting and helping to situate how you know I like to carry myself or hope to carry myself or hope to be perceived and whatnot I thought it was very interesting one thing I did not know and not that it has too too much to do with Miss Winnie but that the white people in South Africa had built a special prison for Mr. Mandela that resembled a house that had cameras everywhere and voice recording everywhere. And so, you know, um, I think there's enough evidence to suggest that those white people definitely molded and shaped him uh, into the person they wanted him to be as a leader or a so-called leader um, in South Africa so I think that's like you know I think it's very eerie um, and scary to really consider that type of shaping and programming and potentially even chemical like specialized chemical warfare using drugs to alter one psychology and like the the way their mind functions and being able to use certain trigger words I mean all of those things are in movies as sci-fi but they are very real and there are many studies to like that prove that they're real that you can just you know we besides having this like fantastic brain are still are still very much animals in the sense that we're completely trainable and when I say we I mean like humanity in the sense that in terms of we're still grouped in, you know, we still have the same certain pathways and stuff or, you know, within us are within other creatures as well. So um, don't misinterpret that. But um, I thought it was fascinating because I really didn't know that. So when they were talking about something that she said and uh, to the, like that when Mr. Mandela said that, he wanted to share the Nobel prize or he wanted to let white business owners do such and such. I can only imagine what she felt because maybe she wasn't really sure that all that is going on. I mean, even if, even if white people tell you to your face right now, yeah, we did that to Nelson Mandela. There are black people who say, I don't believe you. I don't even think that happened, you know? So to have a man that you stood by for so long and then to, to watch that I'm, it's what I'm saying is it's very nice to have her perspective and to speak on it instead of only listening to Mr. Mandela's perspective or, or placing him in such a high place. Like he's just there on his own. Cause she did a lot. And I just, I admire her. I think it is, I mean, it doesn't really matter what I think, but, um, it's just very scary that he, all he wanted was directions to his school. Um, and almost lost his life not that that's in common there was like another woman in that area she thinks she may have been mentally ill or drunk or something and she got murdered by knocking on somebody's door um but i also think it's kind of interesting like i didn't know if they just moved to that area or not um but that lets you know to the extent that we're not paying attention to a lot like i'm not trying to say in, in no way shape or form is it his fault i'm curious though um you know like there's just so many other implications if you ride the bus every day to school and aren't really sure where you're going. You know, the cell phones, like I talk about that a lot, um, technology and it's just unhealthy and making us completely detached in certain ways. So those are just a couple of the things that I wanted to comment on. So I thank you all for listening.
12: Appreciate that, Emmy. Uh I that documentary is spectacular, folks. You really uh make time to check it out way better than Marvel's Black Panther, which I still have not seen uh the number six four one seven one five three six four zero the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate and uh I think that was a significant point uh and uh, just to uh reiterate uh certainly the young teen victim of white supremacy, certainly not in any way suggesting he did anything wrong, but I do think uh, that, I mean, I remember the Pokemon go, right. That wasn't that long ago where you had all these young children walking around with their phone. And I remember seeing uh, even little race soldier children uh, with their phone crossing the street and not even looking They're in the middle of the road because they're looking at their phone. I mean, there's a lot uh, of that going on to, yeah, not, Exactly, be paying attention to where we're going, where we're what we're doing. Doctor Welsing talked about that a few years back when she was addressing the Trayvon Martin uh, murder. Uh, other folks who dialed in that we've not heard from at all. If you have commentary, proceed. I'll be heard. Thomas in New York, I got your back. I got your back too, Gus. Good evening.
32: Um, man, I worked at a um, insurance company. I, I think you might remember me um, talking about workplace racism from there about a year or two ago. And um, when the Pokemon Go game came out, they started selling Pokemon Go insurance in case you know, while you're playing the game, you have an accident or something happens to you or your phone, you could be insured. And uh, this was actually one of their biggest sellers. You know, <laughs> you know. All of a sudden, I started looking at the newspaper, and all these um, accidents—even um, black people playing Pokemon Go, walking up on white people's property and getting shot at—it was all kinds of things as a um, response of people playing this game. Your um, your you story about yoga the other day, um, and the guy came up to you because you had the respect me like on white T-shirt. You didn't wear it that day. You know you know what I'm talking about?
12: All oh, right. When the uh, Mark, the suspected race soldier attorney, when he was talking about representing the black male who worked as a conductor on the railroad for 36 years and didn't get a promotion. Workplace Racism, Thursdays, 8 p.m. Eastern.
32: Yeah, my question is, um, what do you think the response would be if your shirt sure said, respect me like I'm white or else? you know what what do you think do you think white people will come up like you know or else what or you
12: know oh I mean, yeah I think, think I definitely think <laughs> here in Washington state, there would definitely be uh, it might not be every white person, but definitely I think at least if you wore that shirt uh if you wore that work uh shirt seven days for the week, I think you would get at least seven times uh you'd have a white person, uh yeah, or else what? <laughs> what are you gonna do, buddy? show me, I think oh absolutely, absolutely.
32: Yeah, that, that was the same thing I thought. Um, the clip you played about um, the wealth disparity between black males and um, white males—I thought that was a very informative clip. It was compelling and very revealing about the system. Uh, I think it was. It was I mean, you even rewinded it. I mean, the, the way it started, it was just like, "What?" I mean, it just—it just sums everything up um, that we go through. Um I thought that was a great clip. And to the young man who spoke earlier, I think that the um just had a show once before and they were talking about the code. I believe it might have even been nearly Fuller. And um uh, he was talking about white people's code and he equated it to the fire code, how it's just changed over the years. You know, at one point you had wooden buildings and you know, you had a certain code for that. And then as buildings got taller and they started using different constructions, you know, you had another code. But their code is forever changing with the changes within the system. And I think that um, in order for this information to continue going forward, that Dr. Wellsing and Millie Fuller have put out, especially since um, Dr. Wellsing is no longer with us and Mr. Fuller is, um, is gone, um, is, is older, is, is up in age. Uh, in order for this this information to live on, um, people um have to be able to, you know, keep it going in a fresh manner. Um, keep it keep the code changing. Um and they have their own way of looking at that code. And I think that that's uh, one of the beauties within the code is that he he or he even lays out that everyone can make their own, you know, he, you know, he's he's not the expert, he'll say. Um you know, you 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 know, you make your own code, but just make sure you have one. And I think he lays out the blueprint as per what the code should look like that you have, and you kind of build your code around that. And I think that's what a lot of people that you see are doing. I'm here with my line. Thank you.
12: Appreciate that, Thomas, in New York. Uh, other folks who uh, – Renisha McBride, that was the name I meant to say. That was similar to Jonathan Farrell's situation. I think that's who Emmy might have been referencing the uh young black female in michigan i believe that was 2013 she was unfortunately under the influence sobriety would be best uh she was under the end don't forget the the judge cried one of the
32: first times i ever saw Jur- a judge a judge cried as young um, gave that white supremacist
18: to murder
12: ted um, wafer account. yes i was talking though thank you uh Vernisha mcbride 2013 uh when She knocked on Ted Wafer's door, and he said, this is a white man, race soldier. Uh, And he said he was so uh, terrified. And then I remember he said he was so full of piss and vinegar. That was his exact testimony. He was full of piss and vinegar. He got his shotgun, just like uh, Jeffrey Ziegler, who shot at that 14-year-old teen, got his shotgun and killed Renisha McBride. Uh, Blew her brains out all over his porch. It was very graphic. Uh, 2013 same year as Jonathan Farrell, in fact. Uh, other folks that we've not heard from at all, uh, if you have commentary, the line should be open. Uh, greetings, Ivy. Congratulations. Contest winner with uh, counter-racism.com won $100 uh, for Mr. Edward Williams for her definition of racism, white supremacy. Glad to not have spectators. Good job, uh, Ivy.
33: Uh, greetings, Gus, and greetings to all the callers and listeners on the line. It's so funny you say that because my main reason uh, for calling in tonight was to uh, tell you thank you for your congratulations, and then you just uh, gave it to me again. It means a lot to me, uh, your congratulations, because I would not even have a, a definition if it weren't for this program. And in my opinion, you have the best definition that I've ever heard Um, I think your definition can stand up to anyone's and that's definitely no disrespect to the brilliance of Mr. Fuller and uh, Dr. Welding. Um, But I think that, you know, and and I I think I only want because you were disqualified because in my view, when you have a a definition that white people are terrified of and are telling you to take words out, I would say that uh, you um, hope this is not a metaphor. I want to say you have an edge or you just have, I think I hope I'm I'm being understood that it it would make sense um that uh it would be kind of tough to to compete with yours so we'll put it that way. Um I wanted to say for the um the clip about uh the 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 income disparity or wealth disparity uh, about uh no I think it was incarceration. It was incarceration when you compare a black person who comes from a, a rich family, and you compare a white person who comes from a family that makes only like thirty thousand dollars, and uh, the the black person is still more likely to, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, be incarcerated. How the uh, the newscasters, how they tried to make it seem like like they they immediately asked this black man, this victim, how do you think stereotypes played into the situation? And what it was they tried to blame it on stereotypes and talk about perceptions and things of that nature. First of all, these are not perceptions, because perceptions mean that this is what you really believe. No, this is white people practicing racism. This this is this is white people telling lies. I don't even like the term stereotype because I think it's just lies. This is white people making up lies about black people to justify terrorizing them in order to control And dominate them and then even asked him you know how do how do you uh how do black people internalize uh, stereotypes to even blame us as the reason for these disparities that hey i mean it's because there 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 must be some you know perception out there this is what these people really believe and that's why they have these different uh incarceration rates and that isn't true at all and then uh try to throw in or try to add that because there's uh, no men around, and that factors into, um, I guess, the incarceration, and they're more likely to be incarcerated and all this and that. No, these people are victims of racism, and that's why that's happened. And the last thing that I'll say, uh, for now at least, uh, maybe I'll get to talk more later, bringing to me the, the, the black lawyer of uh, Devontae's family or something like that, and she's talking about how bad she felt. In my view, that was too, that was propaganda, and that was too. Um, to to cast blame on her rather than to keep the blame that this happened. These murderers murdered these children because they're racist and for just their own reasons. This is not this lawyer's fault or anything like that. And the same thing about what I said before about there not being any men around or stereotypes or any of that, or, or the cops or the, yeah, the cops perception or judges or lawyers perception. No, this is just people, practicing racism and for them to try to put the blame anywhere else. It's just standard operating procedure. And, uh, I'll mute my line. Thanks uh, everyone. And thanks guys.
12: Appreciate that. Ivy, uh, other folks that we have not heard from at all. If you have a hand up, uh, line should be open. Uh, speak now. Can I be heard? Greetings retired firefighter. Got your back. (laughs) Uh yes sir. Uh
2: I hope you're successful. <laughs> uh yes, yeah, thank thanks for uh, uh ringing me in when you did before I f- lose memory of uh what I want to talk about. Uh first and foremost, uh uh this uh early evening. No, I'm sorry, not early evening, but morning. Uh down here in South Florida, just went through the uh second uh, session of the, uh, DCS quote unquote mentoring program. Uh, there's about, uh, somewhere between 35 and 40, uh, younger black males that we are sharing with. Uh, anywhere between the ages, the youngest one is, I think, six years old, and the eldest is, uh, uh, I would say 16 or 17. And, uh, uh, basically there is, uh, uh, anywhere from, uh, let's say something like from seven to 10, uh, uh, older, uh, non-white black males that are supervising the, uh, the course. Uh, talk about the uh, race soldier, the superintendent of Miami-Dade County Public School, who has a uh, dastardly habit of following around the different tragedies that is expected to take place in non-white uh, black people's uh, areas with young people uh, that attends the uh, school system that he uh, is in charge of uh and he uh shows up to the murder scenes and uh hugs the uh survivors and uh gets interviews uh but at the same time the uh the uh organization uh that was put together by mr clark uh the name of it is eye care he may have mentioned that on on in your interview uh they come up with ideas that would contribute towards preventing tragedies like that from happening by giving young people more constructive things to do uh the uh superintendent what he does with the idea he puts he puts the idea into areas uh where uh there are uh people who uh, really don't need it the most in other words which is uh counterposed to uh the meaning mr fuller's meaning which i totally agree with is meaning of justice uh uh they don't need the most help quote unquote uh uh, but anyway uh uh so that's somewhat what's going on down here in uh, south florida he's been doing that for a while uh, that's how he gets, uh, pu- uh, publicity. As we all know, some, some of us who have been to the news, he was actually offered the job to be the superintendent of the largest, uh, public school system in this part of the world, New York. And he, uh, agreed to it up to the mat- last minute and turned it down <laughs> and turned it down. Uh, I think because he's going to, uh, campaign for mayor. Uh, this last particular time that he actually uh, did his shenanigans, he was approached by a whole lot of young, non-white black people about yelling at him about what you're going to do, what what you're going to do. The next thing Mr. Clark says he knows that he got a call from the guy uh, offering uh, what can I do to enhance your mentoring program, <laughs> uh, and, uh, Mr. Clark, uh, knowing uh, this person, uh, basically stated, uh, reminding him that just because you're going to send some money, if not that I'm going to succumb to you, uh, uh, in favor, uh, because you're going to give me some money, but you can give me money if you, uh, uh, otherwise. Uh, so, uh, Oh, and last but not least, a uh, person I grew up with, we actually, he's a year older, but uh, uh, he, and we actually uh, were students and athletes together at high school level on the, and on the college level. He went on and to become a uh, principal uh, on an elementary school level. But anyway, he put on his uh, Facebook something that's un- unfortunate yet quite common uh, uh, activity between. Uh, race soldiers and young black people. In this case it was a young black female. Uh she had to be she looked to be around in around about sixteen years old. And uh basically she was getting roughed up uh in this uh, particular uh, YouTube uh uh scene. And in turn the comment was being made uh that uh I would not like to be in the position to where I witnessed that uh because of I'll be quote unquote afraid of what I would do uh to the enforcement official and uh basically uh I uh you know called him up and uh mentioned about the uh the three F's uh uh as far as uh uh to don't uh fuss, don't fight, don't flee. Uh, and uh other than that I a conversation with uh, with this gentleman was uh from the standpoint also if you are going to make that choice to do to do that, you uh should be prepared to either kill or die and uh in saying that then uh you know uh, I would end my uh report uh
12: and thanks everybody for listening. take care. Appreciate that. Mr. Williams, uh, again, commendation for sharing constructive information on racism, white supremacy consistently doing so. And particularly with younger folks, that's always needed. Uh, get the younger folks uh, that information as soon as possible. Uh, other folks that we have missed completely. Uh, any other people have uh, a hand up that we have not heard from at all? i we can hear you, but your voice is a little low. If you could speak up, that would be...
27: Hold on. You. Can you hear me now?
12: Oh, okay. Much better. Our mom in the Bay Area, good to hear from you. Thank you. Thank you. Good to hear from you, too. Um, something, um,
27: I guess since I'm driving in Sacramento, I can start with the uh, Sacramento case, um, with the young male that... Uh, got shot in his grandmother's um, backyard. Um,
34: What I noticed with that,
27: aside of the um, protest, I haven't seen any protesting, probably because I don't live in that area. But what I did notice is um, how we've shifted from justice for him to how we're angry about his personal feelings about himself and other black people. So uh I just noticed that and that causes what, a lot of confusion what,
12: because give us can you give us an example well, what he's seeing specifically? I'm um,
27: sure. He um he the lady that he dated or that he was dating is more like a some form of Asian, Cambodian, something similar to that. And she wasn't particular about black women. She they would always speak negatively on social media about black women and black children. She noticed that her son was getting darker So she said that she didn't want him to get dark like his dad. She was hoping that he didn't get dark like his dad. And then he had stated um, throughout um, his social media time, just in general, he put on one of his pages that he didn't want anything black but on his Xbox. And then um, someone else had made a statement, and then he said, uh, on God 100, he didn't want anything black but, you know, his ex-box. He didn't want black kids. He was already black enough. His kids were tri-racial, maybe Indian and some form of Asian. And um, does his children's lives matter. So we went on his social media page and discovered this information. And from there, a lot of the uh, black women had shifted their thoughts. And now we're talking about how he didn't love us or like us, or so we shouldn't support him. So that's where it shifted oh. since then.
12: Can I can I just say this really quick? Uh, forgive me. I just wanted to interject uh, the grandsister Doctor Francis cresswelsing with what you just said. I think she yes. would say regularly, "Black, get back. Yellow, mellow." White, right, brown, stick around. I think I changed the order around, but I think you understand. She said say that all the time, system of white supremacy. That's another one. White people are dangerous. And what I just said, in terms of the system of white supremacy, it should not be a surprise if any black person, any non-white person in the known universe has that way of thinking after being brain trashed and victimized in the system of white supremacy. That's not surprising at all, that is the result of white supremacy racism. I will hush. Continue, ma'am. Thank you for giving the details.
27: Oh, no worry. No worry. So that's that. And um, I wanted to speak on the, uh, the the foster children and how they're um, adopting, not allowing um, the relatives to adopt the children. They're opting for them to be adopted by uh, these lesbian and gay couples. They do that in the Bay Area also, particularly San Francisco. They will allow the black babies to be adopted off to gay white males or um, gay white women versus uh, a a neutral black um, mother-father parenting situation. They don't do that. They'll take the kids. They don't care. And with that particular case, I thought that was crazy because I remember the little boy from when he, um, what was it, in Ferguson or something like that, or whatever it was, it was a little protest, and he would have that sign saying, uh, giving out free hugs, and um, because the foster mom put him up to going out there and having the sign to give out free hugs. So I I, I thought that was strange. And then they were also, before those children um, were drove into the river or wherever they were, the, the little boy would go door to door asking for food because they weren't feeding him. So, um, th- they get these children to do whatever they're doing to them and then neglect them. So I, I noticed that also. And, um, I think that uh, it was so much, but I think that fits just so I don't take up so much time. And, um, Oh, the, 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 um, the people, the the black versus white as far as um, making more money, the educated blacks versus um, any white, them making um, more money or less money. I noticed that um, just in general, just with anything, they they make more money regardless. So I try to teach my son while he's if he decides to go to college, while he's in college, think of another plan. So he can be able to make money because they're not looking out for him. They're looking out for them and all they're going to do. And I take him back to imagine that. And um, because it works for me. And um, he participated in that. And I remember with the uh, character, Eddie Murphy, how he would do all kinds of different things in order to get um, partner. And then I asked him, did he ever become partner? And he said, no. And so I use that. Thank you guys. <laughs> I use that because it helps me um guide him so he'll know not to expect that and that's all i'll mute my line and thank
16: you
12: yes ma'am workplace racism thursday 8 p.m. eastern 5 p.m. pacific and uh commendation another attempted parent uh sharing constructive information about racism white supremacy with her offspring uh really important uh did we have other folks that we missed completely uh number again 641 715 Three six four zero, the code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Any folks that we missed completely? Uh, let's see getting some of the folks who had hands up more recently. Uh, Line should be open. Can I be heard? Yes, sir.
35: Uh, peace to Gus. Peace to everybody listening tonight. Uh, this is V from Central New York, where we are receiving some freezing rain, some ice. Tonight it seems that Mother Nature is gracing us with almost all four seasons in one week. Uh, It was 50 for a while, 60 for a while, below 30 for a while, and now we have ice. Anyway, uh, a couple of items that I wanna uh, discuss very briefly. The first one, um, several months ago, I mentioned a article which I found some years ago about the Virginia Tech shooting Um, which I think the 11th year anniversary or marking will be coming up shortly. I was looking through some old papers and actually found the article. So I wanted to give that out. And what is special about this article, the AP had an article also, which quoted the police captain or police chief at the time saying that they thought there were two shooters And that one of the shooters might have been among the first two victims, the first two casualties of the actual shooter. They thought that the black male who was killed with the black female, that was a domestic issue. And uh, that he had shot her and then shot himself, but the problem was there was no gun at the scene. Anyway, the article um, that I found is from ABC News. It's called uh, Police Site Person of Interest in VA Tech Dorm Killing, Dead Gunmen Yet to be ID'd. And this, of course, was from ABC News. Um, two racist encounters uh, this past week I had two very interesting ones, actually. Um, I was speaking with a young lady who had just began working at a local store. And um, she and I had passed several times but never had the opportunity to speak. This time we did. And she asked me to participate in something for um, her college course, which I was happy to do. But as she was telling me about it, this mentally handicapped person who I had seen before was uh, getting coffee. We were near the coffee bar and he turned before his coffee was given to him and he looked at us and then he turned back, grabbed his coffee and went to walk right in between us as we were talking. I knew he was going to do it. I saw where his eyes were looking, and I stepped forward, cutting him off. He laughed, and in his broken English, said, what, you're going to step in front of me now, uh, knowing how hard it is for me to step aside? And I said, well, it's kind of rude that you would step in between us, so I made a path behind me, which you don't actually have to move very far to get to. And um, he proceeded to tell me that I was rude for stepping in front of him. But he laughed it off and hobbled away. Secondly, same store, um, a couple of days later, I saw a couple of uh, non white black male friends of mine who uh, I hadn't seen in quite a while. And we started catching up, and we were uh, in the uh, eating area and just talking and you know black people we were laughing and you know just catching up and in the 10 minutes that we were standing there I would say probably 10 people tried in some way or another to come uh come between us we were standing in an area but there were plenty of other avenues to get to wherever everybody else wanted to get to but everybody seemed interested to come exactly where we were at. And, you know, in times in times past, I wouldn't have thought anything about it. But this one woman stood for about two minutes looking at us and becoming more and more agitated as she watched us. And finally, she kind of made the sound of disgust and went around and I said, Well, ma'am, the past is always open to you. If you didn't have to wait, she said, Why, well, you shouldn't be standing there? Eh, well, have a good day. And uh, the look she gave me suggested that she wished that I was dead, but um, it kind of made me laugh. So, uh, on that, I'm going to mute my line. Gus, thank you so much for the show. Um, it has done incredible wonders for me. Thank you very much.
12: Thanks for dialing in. Uh, black self-respect, in my view, when the uh, race soldier attempted to walk in between you uh, for you to anticipate that, in my view, that is what getting correct information about white supremacy, racism, you should be able to anticipate what whites are going to do, and then you can take correct counter actions uh preemptive actions no less that black self respect outstanding uh folks we've not heard from the people we've missed completely did we get everybody anybody we missed uh completely Let's see uh, uh, Princess, did you have commentary you want to share? Oh, uh Imhan DC, did you have commentary? Oh, we should have went. Females first. I'm sorry. Princess. Well, uh, we'll get Princess first and then we'll get M. DC. Can it be heard? Yes, ma'am. Uh yes. Um good
34: evening, everyone. Um uh sorry I could not call in to workplace racism because I was working that evening and uh Basically, um, to give an update, if I could, Gus. Oh, let's hear it. Okay. Um, Basically, when I came in to work, um, uh, loss prevention, as well as the DM, were in the office. My manager was out of the office. Um, The girl wind up quitting. I guess when she, from what I'm gathering. She wound up oh, quitting uh, just, once she saw uh, them
12: come in. I'm sorry for interrupting you, Princess. Just uh, kind of a the quick update from last week. Princess was saying that uh, there was an issue. Uh, these are uh, non-white, non-black uh, employees. They had been saying nigger on the job. Princess had raised a concern about this uh, with uh, some of the other staff and saying that this was inappropriate. And she had mentioned this before. Uh, somehow later on, Her tires on her vehicle were slashed. Uh, The police were called. There was suspicion that this employee, where there had been conflict about nigger being said and that sort of thing, uh, that she may have done it. Uh, She was behaving suspiciously uh, the day after the tires were slashed. There were cameras uh, in the parking lot that they were going to investigate. Is that kind of a short synopsis of what you told us when you spoke with us last? Yes. Okay. Yes. Let's get the update. And
34: so, okay. Okay. And so, basically, um, I've been waiting uh, for them to um, review the camera uh, footage. Uh, I've gotten very little feedback about that. I did see in our emails uh, when I was checking the system today that my uh, store manager did put in an a incident report for criminal activity to our security operations uh, center. And so uh, basically, I mean, outside of him, uh, really the, the DM and loss prevention uh, Thursday when I met with them almost pretty much had, a, as if they're siding with this person that's been here less than uh, two, three months. and I And I pointed that out to them Uh, Because basically, it was almost as if they were trying to make it seem like I flashed my own tires on my own car. Um, He immediately asked me about my request uh, to be transferred because I told in my statement that I didn't feel safe, um, you know, with all this stuff going on. And um, he immediately uh, stated, uh, well, we've just received a, a corporate complaint against you. From another store and I was like another store I was like I haven't worked at any other store and even if so I mean you would have to recognize that that sounds like retaliation on on another level. And he was like well what why is it that people have a problem with you and because I don't want to transfer you anywhere else because it seems like uh, you you have these issues and. It was basically he was uh, trying to use, draw up uh, the issues that I've had um, throughout this particular district since I've been in Florida. And I flipped it on him using his own words and basically said, um, you know, it seems like at this point I'm just being retaliated against from the time I was at the original store um, uh, when I first got transferred from New Orleans to now. And, you know, I was accused of something that I didn't do. Um, I was retaliated against then and moved to this store. And it just seems like I've been getting dogged out, all, you know, since then. Um, and, you know, I just told him at this point, I'm not at liberty to talk or say anything because I'm just going to be obtaining a lawyer at this point. There's nothing else uh, for me to say. And then that's when he was just... Like, well, if you got something, if you got video footage, um, then, you know, show us and all this stuff. And I'm like, why am I doing you guys' job? And for one, I I wouldn't do that simply because I don't want you saying that I'm taking company property outside of work. Um, So I I just, uh, I told and spoke uh, to my my manager uh, yesterday about, the exchange and, you know, the loss prevention manager was basically trying to initially talk to me, but I just shut her down because, you know, in the beginning when she interviewed me before taking my statement, like I said, it was almost as if they're they basically making it seem like I've gone around and was talking to people about uh, stuff and that, you know, (laughs) I flashed my own tires, I guess well, I don't know. So I I just said I'm I'm not going to worry about talking to anybody about anything. I will call the uh, police department to see whether or not they have received any video footage because I did uh, email them the detectives uh, contact information, my store manager. So that's, I believe that's why he was able to uh, open up the uh, incident uh, ticket and report to our security department. And so, um, but other than that, I, I just, uh, just, uh, I really don't know, but, um, just I, taking it one day at a time. But, uh,
12: one of those days I would okay. be speaking uh, cause I think the police, uh, I mean, you've got property damage. You filed the police report. They can get the uh, video footage from the store to see, you know, what happened in the parking lot. Who was there? Let's see, mm-hmm. you know, what the video footage shows. Man, I would be trying to press charges. I wouldn't care if she quit or not. That's what you said that she quit, you know, on her own. Like, who cares? Well, I, I like, am. <laughs> yeah, you know? let's press charges, and then that also becomes a part of the workplace file. That oh man, we get, and I'm sure they've probably seen it. Like, I have a hard time believing that a crime would occur on company property and nobody bothers to check the video to see, oh wow, did one of our employees actually commit this like I just have a hard time believing that whites would uh function uh in that manner. So I would just assume that they've already seen it. Well them. go
34: ahead. I, I'm thinking so too, because when I asked her about it, she was like, Oh, well we didn't we we didn't catch anything. We didn't see anything and that's when uh I was like, Really? I said, I said, uh, are you sure? And she was like, Well, we didn't get an a image of the of the of the tires. So as I was telling my dad, he was like, Well, what vehicle was it? I mean, it, it, obviously, either y'all saw something or y'all haven't got to that point. In either case, something's on that video showing that something happened uh, to my car, and um, you know, I, it, it just. You know, it's just wild just seeing how white people, even in the defense of other uh, supposed uh, non-white, non-black folks who identify as being white in general, um, they they still get protection. Uh, you know, under their law, like we're we we as black people are still looked at under suspicion, even when we know, okay you know, we had a heated argument. The girl has already been making a uh, threat around the store and, and talking, whatever, this, that, and the other. And then after I leave work, both of my tires are slashed. And all of a sudden she's acting all erratic, not coming into work and this, that, and the other. And I am supposed to assume Uh, that she has nothing to do with it. And you guys, and and I told them, I said, it seems like Walgreens is not um, uh, willing to uh, basically uh, stand behind its employees when it comes to uh, their safety and security. And she was just like, how could you say that, Princess, and this, that, and the other? And I said, "I, I, I said it. I actually just said it. Like that. Literally, that was my response to them, and they were just looking at me, son. Like, you guys don't care about our security or or nothing in here.
12: At all. Or criminal activity happening on company property. No.
34: And, you know, my dad, he, oh, I'm sorry.
12: Uh, Uh, I was going to say that my
34: dad was... You take about
12: another minute uh, if you want to kind of wrap it up.
34: Okay. Well, I was going to say my dad was even at the time while I was in New Orleans when I had another situation happen, and um, he was in the process of uh, doing a a business proposal with them in order uh, to get them uh, upgraded in their security, uh, because that's what he does. That's what his uh, uh, contracting firm is uh, based on in uh, Virginia. And so uh you know they they don't care to invest in uh stuff like that but they waste all this uh time and money on everything else
12: Practicing practicing racism the primary investment of time and energy make uh safety the number one priority uh in the entire situation uh princess your safety i would definitely uh follow up with the police about the uh video uh workplace racism thursday 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific if uh, any of the folks that are listening in if you have any additional uh suggestions we should have time you can share them uh, online or you can share them on the broadcast i mean uh, or you can drop an email to me until justice at gmail.com and i can pass them along to princess uh m dc thank you for yielding the line you should be with us sir did you have commentary Yes, sir. Can I be heard? Yes, sir.
18: Yes, sir. Greetings to you, the hosts, the callers, and the listeners. I wanted to speak about a few things. Uh, the first thing is regarding white people, knows, the people who came from Europe. So we speak about white supremacy in the individual actions that they did. One thing that Dr. Wilson was reminding us often was that we have to remember that it's an entire system of white supremacy and that it's not just the individual action. And she made an analogy uh, to make that a little clearer. I also um, wanted to stay on that point. We talk about a lot of the things that white people do now that they're here in this country and in other places in the world but they're not supposed to be in this country or other places in the world. So that's the first thing. They're not supposed to be here. And as a native or as an indigenous person to this land, I do not give permission for them to be here. They have to leave. As an indigenous person of this particular landmass of America, I declare, White people, ice albinos, have to leave. They are here illegally and they are here committing criminal activity. Their being here is a criminal activity. The other thing I would say is about the chemtrails. The chemical trails are making the atmosphere cooler or colder. It comes from, they're, they're spraying it from the airplane. So one mail caller today was mentioning it was warm, and then it was cold. Then think there's freezing ice, he said, or rain or something now, and it'll probably get warm again. So all that with the chemtrails, it would naturally be warm. Right now, the Earth is on a course of getting warmer. It has been for a very long time. The only way that it keeps getting cold is that white people are spraying chemicals out of these airplanes. They'll spray it, especially during sunny days. Look up in the sky; you'll see several hundred planes. So, what we need to do is when you start video recording these airplanes, make documentation. I walk a lot in the city. I walk a lot. Period. And so, and while I'm walking, I look up in the sky. I look everywhere, but I also look up in the sky, and I notice that people in their cars, people that are walking. Nobody's looking up, and these planes are very, very visible. And they're spraying this white mist, these this white stuff out of their plane, and it's it's pretty evident. and, and if you just look at it, you can tell what what's happening. As so they they spray the, the the chemicals out of the plane, it the sun shines on it; it expands. It, the water on the earth. Evaporates, goes up to the, the, those new clouds that are formed. It, it forms into rain clouds. The rain or the water absorbs the heat more than any other substance. It gets colder. That's the idea. And then the chemtrails here, again, as I mentioned before, are causing a drought in Africa. The chemtrails in America and Europe are causing a drought in Africa. White people are intentionally doing this, but they have to do this because in the sun, they'll die. The other thing I wanted to say is there's different levels of correctness. There's different levels of correctness we can choose to be at. So one level of correctness is the payment that white people get for what they've done all over this earth is death. That's one level of correctness, a life or a life. Do they have enough life to account for the life that they've taken? Another level of correctness is that they leave the places that they come come to. Another another level of correctness is that they put some more paper dollars and hand it to us. Whatever level of correctness we're going to choose, we we, need to choose one. And the other thing is with the African leaders. I still have not heard anything from the African leaders about white people the problem of white people all over the earth, what we call white supremacy. I have not heard anything from the African leaders. And so I would say for the people here in America, we can contact them, all the African countries. You can contact them with email. We should email all the African leaders, inbox them on Facebook, post on their Facebook walls, tweet them. Contact them on WhatsApp. Use every form of social media, every way that you could possibly use to contact that big group of people, over 2 billion people roundabout on that continent, people who can help. But also, we, of course, we have to inform and educate the people here, the black people here on this continent. But it, it, Technology is so advance that we can and and we're not maximizing the way that technology can be used. So we just need to maximize it. Add as many Facebook friends as you possibly can. There's a five thousand person limit. Add all the black people you can. Erase all the white people. Um, that seems to be one other thing I was going to mention. Was my my plane trip. I I flew to California uh, some time ago uh, during my flight.
12: I'm sorry? Oh, I think that was uh, oh. just interference. Sorry about that. Yes. My plane ride. I had to fly through several,
18: like, I can't even, I don't know how many feet of, of cloud I had to fly through. It was chemical travel. It was it was really, really thick. I just thought you this really, really thick layer of clouds to get above the chemical trails, and then above the chemical trails, there's so much airspace that the airplane I'm in is flying in. And then there's the airspace uh, even above that, that more chemical planes, or however you call those airplanes that are dropping the chemical trails, there's more planes up above me. So what they do is it's layered. Even after they put on the chemical trails to cover them, the sun, the sky completely, the sun above that still spraying these chemicals. And 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 when I was saying that right, just flying up above the chemical chemical clouds, I could just see a bright, sunny day. That's all. We need to solve this problem. Thank you.
12: Appreciate that, Imhan D.C. Uh, do we have any folks that we missed completely who had commentary coming down to the last few moments of the broadcast? Any folks that we missed completely? Have we heard? Uh, yes, sir. Caller in Florida.
36: Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to the hosts, listeners, and callers. It was a few things that I wanted to mention. Uh, I, I did hear that term accountable and I, and I know Mr. Fuller had mentioned that word. And, and I, it's a high frequency of that term and community being used. And then I heard the word the working class because I was reading the cold book earlier today and I, and I believe that was in the, the part where it was talking about labor. And it's just um, a very refreshing experience to really just come across how important and critical the use of words are. You know, you want to be able to use the most accurate, clear terms to describe what we're speaking of and uh, to get away from the emotionalism and the, the eager need to use like a metaphor. Um, Another thing I noticed was uh, was they were talking about the jury duty. I think white like attorneys, they, um, I think what the report was saying was that they tried to, I guess, extract um, potential black jurors out onto jury duty. And uh, I can't remember what that statistic was of percentage. But I found that very interesting. And there was another one I forgot what it was about. Uh, but I'm glad that uh, they did make mention about Winnie Mandela. And I'm not sure. Uh, that was another thing I was thinking about. I think that was the, the Flint interview. I'm trying to think, was that, uh, was that a white woman? I was doing the interview with us. Oh, I
12: couldn't really tell. That was from uh Michigan Public Radio, so uh they didn't have video, right? But I just listening to her voice, I thought it was a white woman that uh for people who, you know, your memory. This was the segment where she was talking about their uh they're cutting off the funding for these centers that uh give out free water in Flint where they have uh, chemical and biological, uh, warfare, poison the water, mostly black town. Uh, and I think it was a white woman who said she uh, was to go around and take water to people who, uh, were stuck in, stuck in their houses or they had medical problems or whatever. She would go around and take them water, but that's going to be ending in days. It sounds like.
36: Wow, well, I and mean, I think cause am gonna have to be a couple of years now. I think maybe, Uh and I think basically the racist could do this unfortunate event to make it seem like, well, hey, this isn't race related or anything like that. See, you have a black woman, she's on a, a media platform, and she's voicing her discontent with the condition, you know, her and her family's and So, see, hey. to
12: speak. Yes, sir. Uh, one of the things, uh, pieces of evidence that I used in determining that I think that was a white woman in addition to her, the sound of her voice, they had that in the segment where they were talking about when they would deny uh, black applicants housing. They said if they weren't talking to them on the phone and they sounded too black, she sounded too white. One of the things was she said when she was listing the victims of the Flint lead poisoning, she listed her three hounds. That Romulus Remus Dr. Welsing sounded exactly like what I would expect from racist man racist woman racist child not Flint predominantly black city black victims my three hounds Hmm. Uh, the caller at uh, last four digits five four two nine did you have commentary five four two nine. just listening or did you have a Yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I just wanted to, uh,
19: say thank you guys uh, for, um, the, the program and the uh, listeners for all the information that they, um, bring the program. And I want to let you know that I listened to you mostly on the app. I have been for the last year and, uh, before, Before I actually found the program, uh, although I've been uh, working in the school system for the past 15 years without uh, a break from, and I worked in the the correctional system, the prison system, and I actually thought that I was racist because, you know. I didn't like the situation that I was in, <laughs> and I wasn't getting along with the, uh, a lot of the white guys that worked in the prison. And I was—I I thought that I was being treated kind of differently, and uh, so I was like—I was like highly confused, highly confused. Um, and when I started listening to this program, I was like, "Oh, well, you know, it may not be me." Um, so I've received a lot of education from the, uh, from the show. And, uh, I just wanted to
12: say thank you to everybody. And I'm going to keep listening. Right on. Hope the cows has been continues to be worthy of your time and energy. And, uh, I, I, if you are being mistreated on workplace racism, Thursday, 8 PM Eastern, 5 PM Pacific every Thursday Uh, if you're being mistreated on the job it is definitely not you Uh, it is racists doing what they do terrorizing non-white people economic terrorism uh, specifically Uh, did we miss anybody I don't think uh, there's anybody that called did we miss anybody anybody have a hand up that we didn't get to hear from at all spectacular Awesome! If you didn't get a hand up, we'll have to grab you next week. We should—oh, I forgot—we should be here on Wednesday. That's April eighteenth. We should be here on Wednesday. White woman, always a hoot when we have suspected race soldiers uh, on the broadcast. The speaking of yoga—I think last week I told you all they had that series at my yoga studio, the Deepening series, uh, where they were having whites come in. And they were doing meditation and body postures while they looked at lynching photographs and talked about their culpability uh, as whites in all of this, the system of white supremacy. They were using the term white supremacy. The suspected racist white woman who organized that event, she should be on the program this coming Wednesday. We'll be looking forward to asking grand questions. You all should take advantage coming up Wednesday. Uh, Ivy, did you have a, a quick final thought? I know you said you had a few other things, uh, but you pretty much did the full broadcast. Do you have a quick final thought you wanted to get in before we conclude?
33: I did, thank you. I just want to say uh, one of the newscasters, uh, black, a black woman, she said uh, that they, something about expecting someone to have their back, and I, I suspect that if she were white, she will not have used uh, slang, so they put this black woman up to use slang to make her sound uh, unprofessional. And I also wanted to add, uh, I, I, would, I hope that you keep telling us the stories about um, your your yoga, because I find it very informative and I learned something, and I, I specifically look to um, you do when you are uh, transparent about your, your personal experiences. And so as a, as a, as a person who likes the, the program, I think a lot of us are interested um, in just your, your your personal experiences because they tell us a lot about how you came to think the way that you do and do the program that you do. And uh, that, that was it. And, and thanks uh, everyone. And thanks guys again. And uh, I'll mute my line.
12: Appreciate that more with yoga on Wednesday, white supremacy and yoga looking forward to it. Always, uh, even regardless, always appreciate the opportunity to, question suspected racists. Uh, that should be Wednesday 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, I did uh, for uh, just to make sure that we don't have uh, a joke where a few people understand the joke and then others are not uh, understanding the joke. I've been saying I got your back to specific callers, the callers who participate in the book club. We're reading Angie Thomas, The Hate You Give, which is a horrendous and a horrendously anti-black book, one of the worst books I've ever read. Uh we've been reading that book and uh they I think every other page they have a black like, I got your back. I got your back. I got your back. <laughs> Anyway, that was uh the joke but it did get uh said a few times in the audio clips tonight and in the time that it was said that I laughed the most they were talking about the district attorneys uh it was uh, Miss Crawley's Crip. She's a uh Miss Crawley's clip. She's a, a black female journalist in Massachusetts. She was talking about district attorneys and how they have police officers back. I thought that was the only time I've heard that state uh, statement when it was correct because those district attorneys they do. They can make sure oh, you went out and used the nigger and you, kept, you shot him 40. No problem. I got your back. No indictment. No. That is I got your back. Just saying that to be saying it, that is not worth anything in the system of white supremacy. That said, uh, we will be here on Wednesday. (laughs) White woman suspected racist uh, looking forward to it. Uh, I'll post all the information. I'll post the flyer so you can see what I saw when I first heard about this event. I'll put that on uh, my Facebook page. I'll tweet it as well so you can see the image. has got a picture of her and all the description for what this event was about and the price and the fact that it said no non-white person would be denied even though I had to go through a whole lot of uh, hand wringing and, and rigmarole when I asked about attending Wednesday 8 p.m. Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific. Thanks to all the folks who dialed in to participate. I hope it was worthy of your Saturday evening. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. I cannot emphasize that enough. Uh, that incident, the situation that could have been lethal for that young 14-year-old who knocked on the door. Imagine if he had been under the influence. I know he was going to school, but I'm just saying. The, Renisha McBride. Could have been Way, way worse. System of white supremacy, we need our brain computers, Dr. Welsing, we need our brain computers operating at maximum efficiency at all times. Uh, We cannot afford to compromise ourselves, our safety by taking whites, narcotics, poisons and thinking that we can just have a good time in the system of white supremacy. That is not the case. We need to grasp war is being waged against us worldwide all areas of people activity. If you're going to be in a vehicle driver or passenger sobriety would be best and buckle up. Let's do everything we can to minimize contact with race soldiers badge or no Jeffrey Ziegler retired firefighter was the race soldier who pulled out that shotgun to shoot that team. That said, uh, if you have any additional comments, questions, gripes, untiljustice at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at untiljustice. Share the broadcast with other victims if you think it would help them get a better understanding of the problems we face because of whites. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cal signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed i'm a victim brother you're a victim
30: i'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning shut up the man has programmed my condition even my conditioning has been conditioned (laughs)
24: lucky land casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky
11: lucky in line at the deli i guess i In my dentist's office